Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. I have news. Our new show, The History of Sex, is proceeding at pace. I've got several episodes already recorded, and all signs point to a release this fall. It's been quite a journey. This topic is not easy to research, so being able to put a date on the project is a huge step forward, and I'm really excited. You can now follow our progress on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at History of Sex Pod, or on our new website, www.historyofsexpod.com. So check it out. As for today, we're trying something new here on Dead Ideas. We have a sizable back catalog of episodes, many of which our new listeners may never have heard and which longtime listeners may have forgotten. So we're reprising classic episodes that are among the best of the best. One of my personal favorites is the finale episode from our Cuneiform series. It's a mashup juxtaposing the story of the Sumerian hero Gilgamesh with the cyberpunk feel of the thriller Ghost in the Shell. See, one of the things I loved about studying the Sumerians, the world's oldest known city-building culture, is how surprisingly modern they actually feel. Thanks to the preservation of cuneiform tablets, we know more about them than, say, the Vikings or the Mongols, and we even have their letters, giving us their most intimate thoughts and feelings, and that makes them feel strikingly recent, hence the futuristic cyberpunk elements. If you want more on the history of the Sumerians, by all means go back and listen to our full cuneiform series, which still stands as one of our best. But today's episode stands on its own as a complete self-contained story. All right, that's enough intro. The oldest of the old meets the newest of the new in this cyber Sumerian retelling of the world's most ancient epic. Enjoy. Today's dead idea, cuneiform, and this is our grand finale episode of our series on cuneiform, and we have got something super special for you today. We're telling a most ancient story in a most modern way. This is the Epic of Gilgamesh, as directed by Mamoru Oshii, who was the director of the 1995 cyberpunk anime classic, Ghost in the Shell. So join us for Ghost in the tablet. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, who sojourned all the way to the co-op this morning to obtain some plant of immortality, only to find it stolen away by a rabbit in the backyard. God damn it. See when that happens. It was really expensive at the co-op, too. It's, <laughs> oh, yeah. it's organic weed of immortality. <laughs> yes. Plant of immortality is not cheap when you buy it at the co-op. <laughs> Do you smoke the plant of immortality? Or is it a vaping, a brownie thing? <laughs> oh, man. I feel like you have to mix it with some kind of, like, buckwheat thorn or, like, seed of who's it's what's. I don't know. Dying immortal hippies. Flax. Make it into a flax smoothie or something. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> okay, so um, so right off the bat, I want to say a big thank you to the Belgian martial industrial group Militia for contributing the haunting soundtrack that we're going to have for you today. They have this awesome modern yet ancient kind of sound that's just perfect for what we're going to talk about today. So uh, they have let us use clips from their album Power Propaganda Production. 
And also, as thanks, I drew their frontman, Frank Gorison, as the Gaulish King Ambiorix, to whom they are devoting an entire studio album currently in production. So check them out for sure. You can see that portrait at our website, www.deadideas.net, and you too can get your portrait done by supporting the show on Patreon. With me today is my co-host of the day, the Enkido to my Gilgamesh, the Bato to my Major Kusanagi, the one, the only, Andre Solo. Who was raised by beasts on the plane and civilized <laughs> by a goddess specifically to podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so Enkido was, of course, Gilgamesh's great friend and ally, and... Bato is the weird-eyed tough guy partner of Major Kusanagi in Ghost in the Shell. And by the way, the Ghost in the Shell that we're talking about is the classic anime from 1995, the hell with this Scarlett Johansson crap. <laughs> it, it was not reviewed well or it did not do well at the box office. Actually, it's, it was better. It was less terrible than I expected. I sense so. a fan war brewing in the comments on this episode. <laughs> no, they did some things really well, but they... They lost some of the deeper themes, but they're really beautiful scenes. So if you want to go see it, go see it. Rachel actually really liked it. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, listeners, I'm sure there are plenty of you out there who don't necessarily know Ghost in the Shell or don't know it that well either. And that's fine. We're actually going to be giving you plenty of background to, for our episode today to make sense, even if you've never seen it. And we're mainly just taking the cyberpunk kind of setting and some of the broad themes from Ghost in the Shell. So you don't need to know the plot that much or anything. And we're going to try not to spoil the ending if you haven't seen it, but you still want to. Although we will spoil the ending of Gilgamesh. Oh. And if you haven't seen that yet, it's been out for literally 6,000 years. <laughs> yes. I think you've had your time. Yeah, yeah. It's on you if you haven't seen <laughs> Gilgamesh yet. So right. speaking of which, yeah. I'd like to do a plug. Do it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I personally get nothing out of the Patreon. Uh, I co-host co a couple times, and I don't get a cut of it or anything like that. Um, but as a listener, I have been uh, supporting the show on Patreon since just about the beginning. And I have to say, I keep getting more and more value out of it. The episodes keep getting meatier. Uh, the quality has only gone up as the show goes along. And this is the kind of show that it's it's really kind of something special because it's, it's really entertaining. It's often humorous, but it's also very informational. And you guys do, you're really good at doing a deep dive into topics so that, you know, listening to the show, you get a lot more that you wouldn't get just reading the Wikipedia on the topic. And I can, I can vouch, this is a homegrown operation. There's oh. no, uh, no big sponsors, no big budget, and it's just a guy doing what he loves and a few of his friends, and they can use your help and support. So go support it. Thank you. I did not ask Andre to say that. <laughs> I, I can't vouch to what weapon, uh, what ancient Sumerian weapons he may have pointed at me right now. <laughs> Yeah, actually, I don't get a cut of the Patreon support either. It all goes right back into the show. Yeah. So. All right. Well, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Okay. And by the way, listeners, just so you know, this episode today is going to be, shall we say, feature length. And we've got a lot of truly epic storytelling to cover here. And we don't, we don't want to skimp you on it, basically. There's too much that's just too good. So we're going to deliver it to you in the best way that we can. But if you need to stop at some point and go get some popcorn or whatever you want, feel free to do so. All right, let's get on to the story. So, Ghost in the Shell and Gilgamesh might seem like a really bizarre pairing. And it is. <laughs> intentionally so. That's kind of the point. For our finale episodes, for our series, we always do some kind of a historical tale mashed up with a pop culture movie of some kind. Uh, for example, for the Medieval Irish Gay series, we did The Destruction of Djerga's Hostel, mashed up with Pulp Fiction. And for our Russian Serfdom series, we did the autobiography of Nikolai Shipov, An Escaped Surf mashed up with Star Wars. So 
Um, this time we're doing Gilgamesh and Ghost in the Shell. And it's also intentionally weird because I just, I really love that idea of pairing the most ancient thing with the most modern thing, this cyberpunk thriller. Um, because one of the major themes of this series has been how, even though Sumer is the most ancient culture that we are aware of right now, because of the fact that the cuneiform tablets preserve their actual words and we hear their, their actual conversations, basically, they feel like they were just around yesterday, you know? So they feel almost modern to me. So I really like that. So that's kind of the rationale. But it's also not weird at all, because the two movies share a surprising amount in common, actually. In particular, an overriding theme of sort of existential angst. And questions like, what does it mean to be a mortal human being that will one day die? I mean, that's the overriding theme of Gilgamesh. And Ghost in the Shell 2 has this kind of existential angst. It's a little bit more like, what does it mean to be a human in an age of infinite reproduction of information when your cyborg body can be scrapped and replaced at will. Which I think Gilgamesh would be jealous of. Jealous of, <laughs> yes. But but nevertheless, it, it's still there and it's pretty similar. And both stories also follow characters that are almost superhuman. I mean, Gilgamesh is two-thirds divine. Hmm. And how you get to be two-thirds parentage of anything, it's a little bit of a mystery to you me. you got to really go back to the family tree on that one. Like, okay, we had 16 divine grandparents and great-grandparents and this many <laughs> humans. Yeah. I'm not sure how the math works out. Right. Um, but, so Gilgamesh is two-thirds divine, and Major Kusanagi is a cyborg whose body is almost entirely machine, except for her brain and her quote-unquote ghost, which is some kind of vague signature of her essence or personality or something. It's not quite explained. Right. Wait, I'm actually going to jump in here and just say to our, our, our gentle listener, so if, if all of this sounds like a lot to take in right away, that's also not a coincidence, because the other thing both these uh, tales have in common is that they're both a little confusing. Mm -hmm. And they're confusing for very different reasons, which is kind of cool. Ghost in the Shell is um, confusing because it's, it's really got two different stories going on. And the really interesting, fun one is this philosophical story. It's sort of like, you know, what does it mean to be a cyborg? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to exist? And that is fascinating and fun in this beautiful cybertech world. But that's really sort of the B plot. And at least on the surface, the A plot is the sort of just political struggle between a couple of government agencies. But... Gilgamesh has a whole other problem, which Brandon, you and I have talked about recently, like uh -huh. that this this could be because it's how narrative was told back then, uh, just in a very different way than we tell narrative now. It was the beginning of civilization. Maybe they hadn't nailed how to do a long story and make an interesting story arc yet. Or it could be a product of trying to take a very gigantic oral epic and cram it into a few clay tablets and you're just compressing and losing a lot. And then, of course, you've got the fact that the original Sumerian version is kind of mostly broken and we don't we only have like pieces of it is that right well actually yeah i'm glad you brought that yeah because a little little historical tidbit about the gilgamesh epic so it doesn't become an epic until quite late in mesopotamian history so like 1100 bce somewhere around there 1300 bce because so like the original like was just like a, a poem right that just mentioned a few things it about was gilgamesh a, it was a whole bunch of disconnected little stories oh, okay. and it wasn't about gilgamesh it was about Bilgamesh. <laughs> with a B. I, I think that was a good writing move when his agent was like, let's go with Gilgamesh. Yes. You need yeah. a stage name, Bill. Also, Also, the the tone and flavor of them was, was very different. They were much less dark and moody hmm. and focused on existential themes and just sometimes almost silly. 
So wait, so if they were less focused on the existential, what was it just mostly like combat victories or? Well, for example, there's one where Bilgamesh is he he's playing some kind of sport that somewhat resembles like hockey or something. And he drops okay. his ball and and mallet down into the neither world and it starts to cry about it. He has to go and get it. <laughs> he starts to cry. Yeah. Let's say that like is he gnashing his teeth? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Gilgamesh! Yeah. Wow, my so respect it, is going down. So it's kind of it's kind of like the the whole Batman mythos where you've got the Dark Knight, but you also have like the super campy seventies or oh. um, Adam West version. Oh, that's such a good analogy. Yeah. <laughs> so okay, so you've got that, and then over time it was refined into this epic, and by yes. the Akkadian version is yes. like the version. We have that's complete and kind of tells the story we've got. Correct. But even reading that in translation, it has it has some broken areas, right? And a lot of stuff that repeats. Yes. And yeah. in as we tell it today, mm-hmm. which we're going to start in just a moment, um, we are actually going to follow the actual tablet structure. It's, there's twelve tablets, and we're going to go tablet. That's two by more than tablet. Moses got. That's impressive. <laughs> well, there's ten. He had ten, ten commandments. commandments. <laughs> oh, true. They weren't like on a tablet each, most likely. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Anyway, we'll go tablet by tablet, skipping around, of course, to keep the pace up. And even where there's breaks in the tablet, we'll keep those. Really? really? Keep, yeah. Keep, right. keep the sense that you're actually like reading this from the cuneiform. Yeah. Right? yeah. Okay, you ready? Yes. Okay. So I want you to imagine beholding a stack of 12 dried clay tablets before you in some great archive. And you've probably had to like pull all kinds of strings even to be allowed into this archive. And one by one, you pick them up, and they're heavy in your hand. And you blow off the dust, and you angle the tablet just right so that the tablet catches the light from the window in the proper way from the left, so that the shadows cast by the cuneiform impressions appear just so. And then you begin to read. And then, being properly cyberpunk yourself, <laughs> you flip on your ocular implants and it scans the text <laughs> and it downloads an animated motion picture recreation of the story <laughs> and your implants project a staticky film holographically before your electronic eyes. And our ancient anime begins with an all-black projection, an expansive space in which row upon row of chunky holographic green cuneiform wedges, typed horizontally left to right, begin to appear like back-end HTML, as if being coded into space itself by the scribe of the gods. And then a deep, gruff anime voice narrates the partially broken opening lines of the epic, inserting static into the breaks in the tablet. I have to do this in my best anime voice now. Do it. He who saw the deep, the country's foundation, who knew was wise in all matters. Gilgamesh, who saw the deep, the country's foundation, who knew was wise in all matters. (laughs) By the way, Brandon's lips are not moving in sync with what he just said. (laughs) Completely off dub. I intentionally <laughs> mastered that to do this on an audio-only format. Months of ventriloquism training. Yes. I, 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 character acting, is, yes. or method acting, is, <laughs> is what I'm going for here. <laughs> All right. So as the opening theme of our soundtrack begins to play and the intro credits roll, you behold imagery taken from the Enuma Elish, which is a different epic which reveals the mythic background and context of our story today the creation of humanity, and a great calamity at the dawn of time.
And now, Mesopotamian audiences would have known this, and they didn't need to be told it, and so it's not in the epic. But we need to be told it in order to really kind of place this story in its context. So I'm putting it here during the, the opening credits, right? Yes. So we see godlike beings with sheepskin kilts around their waists and on their faces glowing neon tattoos like transistors. <laughs> they work the fields of the earth using monstrous contraptions to dig canals that become the great rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. But some throw down their tools and devices, refusing to work. A terrible battle ensues in which the striking rebels are defeated, and their leader is taken before a great machine with the face of a mother goddess. A lump of clay is placed inside the machine, and then the rebel leader is slaughtered like a lamb, and his blood spilled upon the clay. And in the womb of the machine, a form begins to appear. From death comes life, the first human appears. From this the world populates, and humans take up the labor of the earth as servants of the gods, who withdrew into the heavens beyond the atmosphere. But the humans become so numerous that the earth grows thick with them, covered over by cities, neon billboards, and skyscrapers like hives of insects. Neon cuneiform billboards. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Soon all the noise of their activity, the bustle of their hovercars and refineries and reactors, begins to annoy the gods. Then something strikes the sky. Perhaps it comes from above, from the heavens, or perhaps it comes from below, from the pollution of all man's factories. But something strikes the sky and burns it. Dark clouds spread, and drop by drop, it begins to rain, and rain, and rain. The oceans rise and waves crash upon the cities. Humanity gurgles as it passes beneath the waters, all but one couple, a husband and a wife, who, with the aid of those beings in the heavens, survive the great deluge. Then, as these two stand upon a great wintry mountain peak, the rest of the history of the world plays out as if in fast forward. The waters recede, and all over the planet, the broken cities are overtaken by vegetation, but then humans slowly repopulate and rediscover some small sliver of their past glory, as these two stand as witnesses, somehow unaging through it all, and then, having seen enough, retreat into a cave in the mountain. Wow, that is art. I mean, I was here to make jokes, but that, that stands on its own. I, I feel, though, that like there might be some listeners who are like into like the ancient aliens thing who are like, yeah, that sounds about right. That, sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> that would also be a good idea to cover at some point, except I guess it's not a dead idea. It's not idea. really dead yeah. yet. 
Yeah. Uh, well, I will weird. say, I, lo- I love the idea that, that they have hover cars, but they must be like Back to the Future style hover cars. They can't go over water because they still oh, yeah, drown, you know? <laughs> yeah. But I just picture all these stalled out cars just getting tossed in the waves. Oh, man. I didn't expect there to be somebody who's going to pick apart my plot. <laughs> no, it holds up. <laughs> Hoverboards don't go over water. I learned that in 1980, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I guess we we'll also have to mash it up with Back to the Future now. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> back back okay. to the antediluvian times. <laughs> okay. So. Tablet one. The next scene is a city, a human city, made of mud brick and hammered aluminum sheets. In the center, dwarfing the corrugated steel shantytown sprawling around it, is a mighty ziggurat, constructed piecemeal from girders and mirrored panels. From a smokestack at its top rises thick clouds of incense, offerings to the goddess Ishtar. The city is Uruk, over which a certain king Gilgamesh rules as a tyrant. Not to be confused with Bilgamesh. <laughs> He's like, I, have not, I don't know who that guy is. I've never heard of him. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're currently in lawsuits over uh, right. rights to the name. <laughs> <laughs> the artist formerly known as Bilgamesh. Yes. Yeah. Okay, now this is from the actual cuneiform, right? Mm. See its wall like a strand of wool. View its parapet that none could copy. Take the stairway of a bygone era. Draw near to Ayana, seat of Ishtar the goddess that no later king could ever copy. Ayana, like the name of the temple? The, the temple, I Oh, think. wow. Okay. Yeah, so well, city is... Name. Yeah, the city is... Yeah, the temples typically had their own names. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I guess that is obvious when you think about it, but I never knew that. Yeah, but yeah. it's kind of big because it showed up a lot in the in the actual cuneiform text. Oh, like every like every text is like, if only we had a temple like Ayana. Yeah, kind of like that. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. Sort of, yeah. So, so the city is Uruk, the temple is Ayana. The tablet goes on to describe the glories of King Gilgamesh, then gives us a description of what he looks like. It says, A triple cubit was his foot, half a rod his leg, six cubits was his stride. The cyberpunk future and they haven't switched to metric? (laughs) Not in metric. (laughs) A kilocubit was his leg. (laughs) So a cubit, as I looked up, is equal to 1.5 feet or about half a meter. So according to this, that means his shoe size is about four and a half feet long in this story. And his, he spans about nine feet in a single stride, if oh, I did my math great. right. Wait, so how tall would he be tall? Uh, well, it doesn't say his height exactly. They're just like, we got, we got the leg down. That's all you need to know. So it says, yeah, half a rod his leg and a rod is like 5.5 yards or about the same number in meters. Hmm. So his leg alone is over eight feet long. Wow. Okay. So you can imagine his height. And you can also kind of easily now imagine him as this kind of hulking cyborg character, right? Yes. <laughs> so wait, wait, do they also give a cubit measurement or a rod measurement for his manhood? Or is that that's something only Celtic stories would do? That is implied. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the leg was uh, 15 yards, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So in any case, he is by no means unattractive, however. His cheeks were bearded like those of... Another break in the text. The hair of his head grew thickly as barley. When he grew tall, his beauty was consummate. By earthly standards, he was most handsome. So this Gilgamesh 
the text tells us, is two-thirds divine, one-third man. Like some kind of brat kid who is half divine and knows it. <laughs> like, <it's> like... <laughs> Which, by the way, sounds obnoxious to us, but that's like the shtick for like a lot of kings in the story. They like, they're like, oh, no, no, he acts like a king. I'm like, ooh, cool. Yeah, you know? and in pretty much any ancient epic, if you want to make your, your hero a badass, you have him divine lineage that's right, just yeah. what you do yeah yeah they didn't they weren't a fan of the rags to riches arc they were like no god was, to riches yes yeah yeah you, you didn't you didn't rise or fall you yeah you went horizontally from an already privileged <laughs> it was ordained that you'd be badass you continue to be badass and you completed being a badass yes, exactly yeah, right exactly so it describes him a little bit as being this kind of brat god boy <laughs> <laughs> the young men of uruk he harries without warrant Gilgamesh lets no son go free to his father. By day and by night, his tyranny grows harsher. Gilgamesh, the guide of the teeming people. It is he who is shepherd of Uruk the sheepfold, but Gilgamesh lets no daughter go free to her mother. And at this point in the story, Gilgamesh shows basically no signs whatsoever of that fear or anxiety over death that is going to so consume him mm. later on in the story. All that is, at this point conspicuously absent. You can think of it as latent, I guess, in a Freudian sense. Um, he's, he's like the kid who's bratty and egoistic precisely because he has never had to face the harsh questions of like death and that sort of thing, the harsh realities, and never really gained that kind of perspective or wisdom from it. So he's so oppressive, in fact, that the people of Uruk complain to the gods who, in response, decide to create an equal to match him in strength. Which, best plan ever? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is like the plan where, like, oh, okay, well, this invasive, like, rat is destroying everything, so we'll in introduce an invasive snake or yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. So the plan is apparently to wear him out in struggle, I guess, against this equal and thereby take him down a notch and maybe teach him some of that perspective that he's lacking. Oh, so but this is like a kid, like a parent I who's like, know. I got to get a play date for my kid because he's got too much energy. Like, just wear him out and he'll need a nap. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so again, the gods take clay and put it into the vast machine. Oh, so they did not just, like, find some schmuck and, like, okay, they were like, we're going to make this guy fresh. They make a guy. They oh, wow. create okay. A life. Wow. This time, from the machine out comes a wild man. All his body is matted with hair. He bears long tresses like those of a woman. The hair of his head grows thickly as barley. He knows not a people nor even a country. Coated in hair like the god of the animals, with the gazelles he grazes on grasses, joining the throng with the game at the waterhole, his heart delighting with the beasts in the water. And this is Enkidu, the wild man. One of my favorite characters ever in the history of literature. <laughs> and he's like the second character in the history of literature, so... Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so in both Gilgamesh and in Ghost in the Shell, and this is something that, a theme that you brought up yeah. actually last week when we watched this together, there's this tension between civilization and technology on the one hand, and this wild, uncontrollable nature on the other mm, hand. Right. And in both, there's this sense of like inescapable humanity that no matter how civilized or high-tech you get 
you just can't quite get away from it, which is somehow essential even if you're a cyborg. You still have right. this human element that you just is at your at the core of your essence. Yeah. And Dare and I say it, you're ghost. You're a ghost, shall we <laughs> shall we speculate? <laughs> yes. yes. So Enkidu kinda represents, I think, this wild, free, uncivilized, uncyborgized kind of ideal being. Yeah, and that's that's the great point, because like my my favorite thing in Ghost in the Shell is that the entire police force, basically, who are the main actors in the movie, are cyborgs. Mm-hmm. Um, except for one guy. They've got one token well, of this human. Assault, of this particular assault. Yeah, team, this like right? special but, forces yeah, of the police yeah. or whatever. They're all cyborgs. Yeah. Except for this one guy who's just a regular human. He's got supposedly some uh, brain augmentation. Other than that, he's mostly human. And they, they even call out. They have a whole conversation about, well, why, why are you even here? Or he, <laughs> he asks, why am I even on this team? And the cyborg tells him, because we were all made by companies. We all kind of think the same way, act the same way. And you have an unpredictable quality to you as a human. You think differently. We need diversity on the team. Otherwise, we would fall prone to errors. Um, which is a great explanation. And, like, sure enough, his, like, stubborn human refusal to use certain advanced weapons and use a, a revolver pays off <laughs> in one scene. Although they even give him grief about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, <laughs> so there's, like, this really cool tension. And I think in Gilgamesh, it's it's... Every character is a cyborg, right? Because, like, this is the beginning of civilized humanity. Everybody in the story is a step above the wild hunter-gatherer, beast-like, you know, prehistory, um, which they wouldn't have thought of in quite those terms, but they definitely had a sense that humanity is special because we cultivate the land, because we make canals, because we have cities, and the cities were a big deal. Yeah. So the fact that you are a civilized human being means you're, like, the, the badass equivalent of a cyborg of that time, and Enkidu is the token wild thing on the team. He's like, no, I don't follow those rules. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. 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 And, and the Sumerians and the Akkadians, um, they, they definitely thought of themselves as being better than the peoples around them. They were very proud of their civilized nature. And I don't know if they had a word corresponding exactly to barbarian, but they definitely right. had that dynamic. Yeah. And... Um, as we heard in our episode with the Sumerian banquet, which we, we made like a full seven course meal of Sumerian actual recipes, which is awesome. Um, <laughs> and they didn't taste that bad. <laughs> yeah, and Brandon has like remade some of the dishes and shared them. And I will say some of them are really good. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, any, anyway, we heard in that, in that episode that they were, they, they were super proud of their ability to have refined cuisine, to have nice. this mark of civilization, which in this particular story is that that's like their cyborgness right right yeah yeah so so tension right between civilization and high tech and this wild free uncontrolled nature so to get back to the story enkidu is created by the gods to be gilgamesh's equal and then he is let loose upon the earth then a trapper in the wilderness beyond the fields and the irrigation canals which are all of course signs of civilization right on the fringes of, you know, the civilized world, the frontier, this trapper happens to come upon this wild man, and he's terrified. I mean, it's just, it's like coming up upon, you know, like a, an orangutan or something, right. as far as he's concerned. And in an era where hunters were not really that superior to their prey. I mean, if you were walking around with a high-powered rifle, right. you see a wild man, you might not be that scared. But if you're walking around with some some traps, some snares, and you see a <laughs> wild man, uh... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So the trapper, what the trapper does next after seeing this wild man is interesting. Uh, He tells his son, who is with him, to go to the city and tell the king, Gilgamesh, 
to send a certain woman. And he says, Take the road, set your face toward Uruk. Do not rely on the strength of a man. Go, my son, and fetch Shamat, the harlot. Her allure is a match for even the mighty. And now, for me, this is actually one of my most favorite moments in the entire epic. So I'm going to geek out a little bit Please, here. please. <laughs> so the trapper just encountered what to him is essentially like a wandering monster. Yes. <laughs> we were playing Dungeons & Dragons, Sasquatch, right? kind of, yeah, yes. right, yeah. yeah. Now, even... Now, now, if this actually were Ghost in the Shell, the response might be to call in Section 9's assault team, you know, led by Major Kusanagi, right? right. And they just take him out. Right. Um, with her thermaptic camouflage and her high-powered, you know, automatic weapons and all that, you know? But that's not what he does. He does not do that. Instead, his response is, go get this lady. Hmm. <laughs> go get Shamat. I also love that he just thinks of this, like... It's like it's like you run into the Sasquatch and you just check your like outdoor survival manual, you know, like twenty pages of Boy Scout manual, and like page fifteen is like, what to do if you encounter a wild man? Well, don't <laughs> use arms and don't try to snare him. Just call a harlot. And he's like, oh, yeah, go get the harlot. Natural reaction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which, by the way, the harlot in this case, like that word in English, just means like a a, a whore, basically. But yes, have it's... you guys unpacked in previous episodes the whole like sacred prostitute? Yes. Okay. So the episode just previously, we talked about this. Now, so, yeah, so that was the next thing I was going to go into, right. so thanks for introducing it. Yeah. So, um, so Shamat here is described as a harlot, right? And I believe the actual Akkadian word used in the cuneiform is harimtu, and that, as we heard in the last episode, is probably the standard sex-for-sale type prostitute, hmm. um, possibly employed by a temple, or possibly not, and possi- but possibly also a sacred prostitute, and there's a whole controversy around that which you can you know you can go back to the other episode <laughs> right. yeah i'm not gonna go into it again but anyway within the gilgamesh epic as traditionally interpreted shamhat is one of these sacred prostitutes right. a very prestigious and high class and venerated kind of role within society right. and apparently quite respected and a celebrity even because even a trapper way out on the fort knows about shamat you know right. this, this this is the um <laughs> the kim kardashian of, of samaria <laughs> oh I, I my condolences to shamat for that <laughs> comparison <laughs> i don't know but yeah she's like a celebrity she's like a sex symbol basically yeah, who, yeah who's like who's like a sex symbol who's also like you know respected respected i mean i don't know madonna Madonna. Okay, the Madonna. Right, right the yeah. Madonna. I, uh, I just picture this hunter like has like a pinup of Shamhat like in his hut, <laughs> and he's like, she knows what to do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So he's like, yeah, go get this Shamhat, right? Don't not call in the A team, but go get Shamhat. I think she is the A team. Yeah. <laughs> Sex so, first, ask questions later. Yeah. And also, Shamhat is described as a match even for the mighty. And in this case, that means a match for Enkidu. But remember that Enkidu is made to be the equal of Gilgamesh. Oh, so right. by the transitive property, yes. Shamat is equal to Gilgamesh. <laughs> <laughs> so we actually have kind of like a triad here of right. heroes in the in the story. And the story doesn't focus nearly as much on Shamat. I hmm. wish it did. Yeah. Uh, but That would be a great like um, yeah. spin-off novel that somebody could write. Like Yeah, exactly. Shamat's Tale. Shamat's Tale, yeah. yes, exactly. Or like yeah, wicked. Yeah, yeah right. it's like it's like the wicked. Yeah, I would, I would totally be that. Yeah, but here's the thing: her talents are not the same as theirs. Uh, she's not like the badass major Kusanagi, who's like made to fight. She is more like the geisha androids that show up in the Scarlett Johansson version, hmm. which is one of the few things that they actually did well. Hmm, uh, cool. Pretty beautiful in that scene. Um, 
I mean, you told me not to watch the movie, but once I hear Geisha Androids, it's going on my list. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we can watch it now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but at the same time, she's not just a faceless android, one of many. This is Shama. Right. Right. <laughs> So Shamat's talents are to lure him over, not to destroy him, but to lure him over. The trapper's son goes to King Gilgamesh and explains that there's this wild man wandering the countryside and complains that he's undoing all the civilizing work that they're doing out there on the frontier. And he says, he fills in the pits that I myself dig. He pulls up the snares that I lay. He sets free from my grasp all the beasts of the field. He stops me doing the work of the wild. So basically the trapper's son tells King Gilgamesh that there's this guy obstructing progress on the frontier. <laughs> and I love that at no point does Gilgamesh say like, okay, so there's a wild man out in the wilderness <laughs> and I need to send our best temple prostitute out where your father hangs out where no one else is around. Right. Like that, <laughs> I never suspects this is a ploy. <laughs> Actually, so it, it, the way it's written in the, the epic as, as I have it mm -hmm. in my version the Trapper's son never suggests Shamhat to oh, Gilgamesh. Okay. Gilgamesh just kind of simultaneously comes up with the same idea. The same it's idea. Like, he also oh, I know the what to do. Guide. Yeah, yeah right. I know what to do. Yeah, the same, <laughs> exactly. You read the same oh, wilderness that's great. guide. Yeah, yeah. Right. he's like, send in Shamhat. Right. Yeah. So they Maybe get that's like part of her branding. She like her Twitter <laughs> profile is like sacred prostitute, tamer of wild men, tamer of wild men, <laughs> frisbee player. Like, <laughs> yes. So they get Shamhat, who's all decked out then in her like geisha regalia right and they reach the wilds once more and they meet up with the trapper and then they come upon enkidu wandering with his herd and this is terrifying of course uh and they i, I have to imagine the trapper and his son just being like oh shit there he is and they like hide behind brush or something but she is not afraid Ooh. She doesn't hide. She steps forward. Man or beast, every every guy wants one thing. <laughs> she knows it. Shamhat unfastened the cloth of her loins. She bared her sex, and he took in her charms. She did not recoil. She took in his scent. She spread her clothing, and he lay upon her. She did for the man the work of a woman. His passion caressed and embraced her. For six days and seven nights, Enkidu was erect as he coupled with Shamhat. That's that's the way Sumerian literature was. They were right. very frank about everything. It's well, just like here it is. <laughs> what I love though is it it is very frank and and just kind of like matter of fact, but it's yeah. also parts of it kind of sensual and romantic you know it's like oh yes this is not like i mean she, i mean she's kind of like leading this and she, mm -hmm. she's doing this very intentionally it's not like a lot of ancient references to men and women where it's just pretty much like the guy does his thing to or on the woman this is like she's an active participant and yeah. she's she's i would say she is the active one yes yes yeah. i mean this is her scene right, right. here you yeah know? she's being proactive and taking charge right yeah, and, and also, yeah, the poetry of ancient Sumer, like the erotic poetry. We did a whole episode on it. It's some of my favorite poetry cool. of all time. So she basically puts her professional talent to work, and immediately he's under her spell. Hmm. 
and for a week she lies with him. And then a change happens. When with her delights he was fully sated, he turned his gaze to his herd. The gazelles saw Enkidu, and they started to run. The beasts of the field shied away from his presence. So she seems to have somehow defanged him by bringing, into, bringing him into the human fold. Right. Um, something is spoiled by this exposure to civilization, to mm. like culture and luxury, or you know, in our Ghost in the Shell version, to technology. Right. And Enkidu loses his sort of animal man powers, but he also gains something else. Enkidu had defiled his body so pure, his legs stood still, though his head was in motion. Enkidu was weakened, could not run as before, but now he had reason and wide understanding. So he's lost his animal herd. He's lost his tribe, basically. The only family he has ever known. He's and, got an iPhone now. But, but he's got an iPhone right. now. Yeah. And, yeah, and he can think. Right. Yeah. So he then he goes back to Shamat, and he, she starts telling him about this guy Gilgamesh in Uruk, and then and how handsome and mighty he is. And then something kind of strangely stirs inside Enkidu, something instinctive. It says, he knew by instinct he should seek a friend. Hmm. So something human in him that's, you know, made for society, it seems, at this point gets introduced or, or really, awakened. Yeah, or almost like a kinship recognition with Gilgamesh, because he's not interested in society writ large, right? She's not mm. like, and we have shepherds, and we have food, sure, and we sure, have barley sure. bread. She's like, she describes this one guy who sounds maybe kind of cool, you know, oh, which well, I like. You yeah. can put it that way too, yeah. Well, it's my way and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, there also seems to be some something else in him, some other kind of impulse. Because in the very same breath, Enkidu says, I will challenge him for my strength is mighty. Which is why I love it that you were just like, let's fight about it. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I love about this too is I was thinking earlier, I didn't, I didn't realize that that was his next uh, response, but you know, she mentions this like handsome, strong man named Gilgamesh. And my first thought was maybe it's not loving society at all, but maybe it's a sense of jealousy. Like he's like, wait, wait, are you this other guy too? Like maybe <laughs> oh. he's like, I'm going to take him down. Cause I, I want, I want to be with Shaman now. I guess you could read it that way. Yeah. There's many interpretations, I guess, yeah. but uh, it could be fun. So this seems to be another instinct in him, like an animal challenging another for like alpha position or something, right? right? But Shamhat, always knowing just what to say, manages to smooth it over by telling him that he and Gilgamesh are actually destined to be friends. Hmm. And in fact, Gilgamesh has been dreaming of Enkidu since he was a little boy. Is that true? That's in the story. Oh, okay. Yep. Yep. There's a, it, there's a lot of like really weird, trippy dreams in there. I didn't know this about the Gilgamesh story. And there's one where Gilgamesh dreams that he's like having sex with a rock. And his mother interprets it as like, oh, you're going to have a friend. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah. making friends in Sumer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's the end of Tablet 1. <laughs> and now we're not going to go through all of the tablets okay, in such excruciating fair. depth. A right. lot of them we're just going to skip almost right through. So, But we'll go through uh, the tablets. Okay, so Tablet 2. Moving on to the next cuneiform tablet, and you do this by finding the tablet. So, so you actually in the room, remember, we're watching this tele holographically mm. on the wall, right? With your ocular implants, right? right. And suddenly so, it's just like end tablet one. Exactly, end tablet one, right? And then you have to like find the next tablet. And the way that you do this is you find the tablet that at the top starts with the same line as the previous one ended. Oh, good Lord. It's called a catch line. There's not like a numbering system or anything. <laughs> no. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
<laughs> wow. Yeah, I feel like I could have helped them with it. I would have. I would have been like, now when we're going to make indentations in the bottom of the tablet and the top, and the bottom of one fits on the top of the next, and that's oh, how you know. Link? That's yeah, like one one little spike fits into one, and then two uh-huh. spikes is the next one, and three so nail fit together. Eh. First, those spikes could have broken off, but yeah. better than this line system. Yeah. <laughs> So you manage with with much frustration to find the next tablet in the sequence and load it into your implants and the, the trying not to get spoilers from other tablets if you're sorting through them. Like, oh, you don't read anything but the first line. Yeah. Okay. So moving on to the next cuneiform tablet, it begins to project before you. And in this tablet, Shamat does more than just give Enkido a good lay. She basically educates him into the civilized life, and she becomes his tutor, his teacher, and she brings him into the world of culture. And here we can fast forward quite a bit, imagining, you know, like a montage where the main character, like, tries on a series of funny hats or something. <laughs> so, so she feeds him bread, right? right. And then she gives him ale, of which he, like, drinks a very large quantity. And then being drunk, she manages to cut his hair and trim his nails. This well, is he, a perfect montage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and she dresses him in civilized clothes. So you have to imagine this ape-like wild man kind of, Going into this mon- montage with matted hair and like his junk hanging out for all the world to see. Yep. Um, and then coming out of it basically like in a power suit and his hair slicked back and like a Bluetooth earpiece in one ear or something. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. It, it, okay, so, so, so he does that. Right. Right. And I think to keep with our, our theme, where civilization equals technology, we should give him a little bit of you know, cyborg implants at this point. So let's give him like beady round eye implants like Bato has. Yeah. So basically, it, it looks like two shiny quarters in place of your eyes, Yeah, basically. Yeah. Like Coke bottle glasses built into your eyeballs, basically. Yeah. yeah. And that's probably what, as we're reading the tablets, right? That's probably what we're using for ocular implants, too. Something <laughs> right. like that. So you this have guy seems too. familiar to Everybody's us. Everybody's got Yeah, right. Yeah. It's the latest fashion. <laughs> so basically, Enkidu has crossed over into the world of civilization and technology. And now it's time for him to meet his destined equal, Gilgamesh. So here's a rumor that this tyrannical king of Uruk that Shamhat mentioned has invoked the royal right of Prima Nocte, oh, yes. which, if you recall your Braveheart, you remember what it is? Oh, yeah. And, and many other stories. Yeah. Yes. So this is the right of, of the ruler, whoever's in charge, to uh, basically to have relations uh-huh. with a new bride on the night of her wedding, yes, uh, and then turn her over to the husband. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So. Which may or may not have ever really existed in any culture, including this one. Yeah. It this seems like might... it comes up as a plot device throughout ancient and medieval history, but yeah. I, I would imagine times it was actually invoked in the real world would have been short and ended with a lot of violence. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. And that might have been the case here, too. Right. So, so it's in the story here. It says, he will couple with the wife-to-be. He, first of all, the bridegroom after. And, but Enkidu in the story finds this repulsive and he immediately marches off to like intervene like this mm. can't happen so Gilgamesh thinks this is just great and he it's just a policy he has but Enkidu is like no this is not all right yeah and I don't quite know exactly what his motivation is whether he, he represents freedom and it's like he's identifying with her loss of freedom or if it's just purely the author trying to make Gilgamesh feel like more like a tyrant to the audience and I don't know right yeah yeah so anyway he goes off and goes into the city and he then he finds Gilgamesh in an alley on the way to deflowering this girl oh an alley fight is the alley flooded 
Uh, not that I know of. I'm going to say it's flooded, like the okay. alley scene in Ghost Oh, Show. yeah. Okay, yeah. yes. Yeah. Okay, yes, definitely. And, and he shows up with, like, high-velocity bullets in his fully automatic gun. Yeah, and, like, crazy. invisible thermoptic camouflage. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. There's okay. a beautiful fight in the water with, yeah. you can't see one of the people. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so they have this kind of face-off, and they, like... First, they have this bit, like, two wolves growling at each other or something. They growl off. Traditional yes. growl off. <laughs> and then they fight. Gilgamesh and Enkidu throw down in a monumental grappling match, but neither can best the other, and they wrestle and they tussle and they roll and until they tire themselves out. And then finally, realizing that they are equals, they kind of sort of find a kinship in each other and almost like a couple of drunks in a barroom brawl, just kind of hug it out <laughs> and decide to become besties after that. So this is fun because I had the same but exact opposite thing happen when I was a kid. <laughs> okay. Now, when I was a kid, I know some people grow up where you're, you're wrestling with your brothers all the time. All the time. I only had a sister and I never got into any kind of physical fights. And I don't think I even knew how to throw a proper punch as a young boy. Uh-huh. Um, but at some point in, in elementary school, I managed to irritate another kid. I, I still don't remember how. I don't think it was intentional. And he told me, he's like, we're going to fight at recess. Or after school or something. Jeez. And I did, I was terrified, but I also, I knew enough, I guess, about the precepts of manliness that you don't just not show up or run away or tattle. I was like, I was like, Andre, you just got to go and and do your best and you'll probably get hurt. You know, that Uh was my honest thought. Uh So I show up expecting to get walloped. And we kind of start, I guess, doing like the stereo, like the kind of movie-like. You're kind of yeah. circling each other. I, I put my fists up, probably not even with a proper fist. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I think what happened next was that I looked so pathetic that he realized that it would just be silly to even fight me. Because <laughs> I, I tried to dart forward and stomp on his foot, uh-huh. which was probably my best move. And I actually <laughs> failed even at that. And, and rather oh, than then, pres- low die. oh, I rolled low, yeah, or maybe high with really bad stats. Yeah. But I think he realized like this is because at that point he could have just beaten me. He could have uh-huh. taken a couple punches, and I would have been probably down in tears. Uh-huh. And he was just like, he just stopped. And he's like, we're friends now. I was like, are you what? serious? Yeah, I was confused, and we never actually became close friends, but we were friendly after that. So I was like, oh, all so right, he respected that worked. you, yeah. Huh. Apparently. Or I think he just took pity on me. I think he was like, I can't beat this kid up. It'd be like, it'd be like me being up a four-year-old, right? Like, it's uh-huh. like the power difference was so great. He's like, I can't beat this guy up. Okay, so now we're imagining an invisible thermoptic Andre <laughs> in, in a flooded alley. But my, my thermoptics aren't on properly, so like half of me is visible. I'm like, <laughs> fussing with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, yeah. So they become best friends after this. They're BFFs. And they're just inseparable after this. And they go on a big adventure together to slay a monster called Humbaba, who guards the forest of the cedars of Mount Lebanon. Which cedar was like really valuable back in the day. Really valuable. I mean, you hear about the cedars of Lebanon in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. I mean, it's, it's like, wow, our king is able to exert such influence across distances that he's able to obtain the cedars Ooh. even from Lebanon in order to construct the great temple or whatever wow. it is you know so it's 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 an expression of might at this time in history to be able to say that you have cedars of Lebanon in your temple that you're right. building 
And I have to wonder if this story is actually like there's some kind of subtext to it that this remembers some kind of political oh, struggle that happened right. where Storm they actually them. went to Mount Lebanon yeah. or maybe wanted to go to Mount Lebanon and just told their people they did. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which anyway. I, I imagine too, because I mean, this this area. I know it's not the the entire like area is not all desert, but it is it is not a lot of forest in the area to start with. It's very poorly wooded. And then even just a regular forest would be one thing, but cedar is a very durable, yeah. uh, water resistant material. So I could picture that being very valuable. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. to have any trees is valuable in Mesopotamia. Right. To have cedars from Lebanon, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So Gilgamesh's motivation for this adventure is supplied later on in a in Tablet 5, but it's not hard to predict what it is. Basically, it says he wants to establish forever a fame that endures how Gilgamesh slew ferocious Humbaba. And this is the first inkling that I can find of Gilgamesh's latent anxiety over his mortality. I mean, it, it doesn't even mention death at all, but it implies mm. some kind of concern for what happens later. Mm. You know, I want people to remember me. I don't right. want to just blip out of history, you know? So uh, yeah, there's something starting. I like that it comes up in advance of a battle. Yeah, because what we've seen so far is, I mean, and you know, I would assume that a ruler was raised to be a warrior and he has his hover chariot and everything. But like, <laughs> yeah, and what we've seen so far is him kind of just bopping around town where he's the he's the rooster, right? Like yeah. he's the big guy on campus. Yeah, and there's not any credible threats. But now he's going to fight not just a foe, not just wrestling some dude, but to fight a monster. Yeah. Right. So I, I could really I like the idea that now his he's starting to have these thoughts of fear <laughs> and questions about the future. Yeah, that yeah. fits. That's an interesting. It's very Achilles like. Yeah. 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 So the quest to slay Humbaba is a monumental undertaking that actually takes up three tablets of the epic, which we're going to mostly just skip over, right. except for only the few parts that are most relevant to our theme of, you know, this mortality. Right. So in tablets three and four. Tablet 3 tells of all their preparations, where the local elders warn them against this venture, but they just say, nope, we're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a bunch of guys saying, like, doom. <laughs> yes. Okay. He says, Merlin, it's too dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> well, Anthony, so are these warnings, are they, like, prophetic? Like, you'll die if you go there. Or are they, like, just saying, well, this is me, really dangerous. Be careful. It's more like, this is a bad idea, guys. Oh, nice. Uh, so yeah. I, I don't know. I have to go back and look. Yeah. Right do we have the sense, the, I forget what Humbaba is? Is he like a beast created by the gods? Or it's never really describes him. Okay. Never really yeah. describes him. Um, so in Tablet 4, they kit themselves out like a proper assault team. And uh, they set off on their journey to Mount Lebanon. And you see them, you know, strapping on their weapons and checking their ammo and everything and cocking their guns and so on and tying a bandana around their head yes. and all that. Yeah. The whole nine yards. And then they set off. And along the way, they actually seek omens by Ooh. ritually incubating dreams. And this is also interesting to me because this implies there's a chance that they might fail. Because right. they're, they're asking if this is going to be successful, basically, by checking right. the omens. And so there's some sense of fear that they might not succeed at this quest. And Ooh. in a quest like this, failure is going to mean death. Yeah. Yeah. So they consult the omens through dreams. makes this extra interesting is that the text actually tells us how they do it. Oh, excellent. I was going to ask, but I figured it would be those omitted. So, okay, go. Yeah. yeah. So they ritually incubate the dreams, and here's how they do it. 
Facing the sun, they dug a well. They put fresh water in. Oh, the best part. Breaking the text. (laughs) Right. Gilgamesh climbed to the top of the mountain. To the hill he poured out an offering of flour. Oh, mountain, bring me a dream so I see a good sign. Enkidu made for Gilgamesh a house of the dream god. He fixed a door in its doorway to keep out the weather. In the circle he had drawn, he made him lie down, and falling flat like a net, lay himself in the doorway. Gilgamesh rested his chin on his knees. Sleep fell upon him that spills over people. So his chin on his knees, it's kind of like a fetal position. Yeah. Because they said he was laying down. He wasn't sitting with his knees up and his, his head on them. It said at first, lay down flat like a net, but then the next but line is like... going on. Yeah, so... I'm going to picture him on his steps. side at that point, laying on the ground horizontally, but with his knees pulled up. Sure. Which yeah, sounds I... like a horrible way to fall asleep. But if you're sleeping lightly because you're uncomfortable, maybe you're more likely to remember your dreams. It also um, resembles a whole lot like one of the most iconic Ghost in the Shell posters. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, but anyway. Oh, they were looking for dreams in that movie. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> Do cyborgs dream of electric sheep? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> Anyway, he does this five times on the way to Mount Lebanon, and he has five dreams. And each time, waking with his flesh frozen numb and feeling like a god has passed by. And in his dreams, he sees, the first time, a mountain falling on him. The second time, a mountain throws him down, but a man pulls him out from under the mountain by his feet. That doesn't really make sense to me, but in a dream, I guess it can happen. Um... Dream three, lightning ignites a fire that rages furiously. Dream four, a thunderbird whose mouth is fire and who breathes death appears. And lastly, a bull and a man who gives him water to drink appear. And each time Gilgamesh awakes fearing that it's a bad omen. But each time Enkidu reassures him that no, no, actually, these are good omens and we're going to be successful. And Kidu's got this. So now we've put aside the survival guide, and uh-huh. we've got, like, the guide to interpreting dreams, which it sounds like, based on these images, is going to be a much thicker guide. There's a lot of, like, reference tables. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And then Kidu's like, no, no, it's good. Bull giving him water. Yeah. yeah. He's like, wait, wait, the bull wasn't giving you water, right? He's like, no, no, I gave the bull. Oh, yeah, that's, that's fine. That's a good sign. Good sign. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Tablet 5. In Tablet 5, they at last reach Mount Lebanon. And there... In the heart of its rills, amidst the towering cedars, they come upon the guardian of the forest, the object of their quest, the monstrous one, the terrible Umbaba. I'm going to go ahead and imagine Humbaba. Like I said, we don't have any descriptions. So Gilgamesh is not telling me that this is not a spider tank from Ghost in the Shell. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's I have that creative freedom. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and imagine him like this tank from the, from Ghost in Which, the Shell. Which, if you right? haven't seen Ghost in the Shell, it's basically, it's a beautiful scene. Uh-huh. Uh, they're in a warehouse. She knows that something is, is in between her and the car that she's trying to get to. And uh, she asks her helicopter overhead to shoot out the roof. And when it does, pieces of glass and bullets hit the invisible thing and spark its shield away, its invisibility shield away. So you are revealed this gigantic, like, spider machine that's probably the size of a house, right? Yeah. And then starts shooting, like, tank rounds at her. Yeah, it's it's pretty intimidating, yeah. to say the least. And so is 
Humbaba. And it's also very appropriate because, as I recall from the retelling version of the book, which has lots of footnotes about the, the original, um, the word is not easy to translate, but Humbaba supposedly had a series of what could be translated as, like, auras or Oh, I'm so glad you're bringing this up. So I'm picturing that as his thermoptic shield that it was keeping him invisible. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay, I had a different interpretation. Oh, good, yeah, but do here, it. Okay, so here's the thing. Right. Okay, so in the Akkadian epic that we are following, there's almost no reference. There's just one little kind of kind of obscure reference to not letting Humbaba put on his seven cloaks, and that's yes. it. But... But but the book that I read, the version, gave the backstory in the Sumerian version. Oh, wow. And in the Sumerian version, it's not Humbaba. The name is Huwawa. Mm, yeah. again, again, copyright issues. Yeah. <laughs> versus Huwawa. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and Huwawa has these seven ni, or auras, or terrors. Oh. And Mesopotamian kings actually were thought to have something like this called Melam. And it... It, it it symbolized or embodied their ability to inspire terror in the enemy in battle. Hmm. And in stories, somehow they were able to give it away or lose it. Somehow. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So Huawa has these seven auras that are like this and inspire terror that are protecting it. And it makes it too powerful for them to fight it directly. Hmm. Wow. So instead of fighting it in the Sumerian story, what they have to do is they have to trick it instead into submission. So Gilgamesh promises to give Huawa his sister as a wife. And in return, because remember, you know, this is like a gift-giving society. You know, it's like a tribal society where gift-giving is a big thing. Yes, right? but now I'm just picturing the spider tank from Ghost in the Shell walking down the aisle with Gilgamesh's sister. Oh, no. I do. <laughs> <laughs> so in, re in return for this gift. She's a cyborg. She might, she might be into it. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um, Gilgamesh asks for one of his auras in return. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. So he's tricking him into giving up his protections. And one by one, he does these offers of gifts and gets auras back in return until he's got none left. And then at that point, they're like, okay, take him out. So the spider tank is not like a good adding machine. It's like, <laughs> it's not realizing that by giving away one, you're down to six, then down to five. Yeah. 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 It, it seems to be, it's, it's written... Um, with a much more primitive AI than uh, the rest of the technology. <laughs> yeah. All of that programming was dedicated toward like ballistics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, but I, but I like the idea of thinking of the auras as like these the invisibility abilities that that can be knocked out. Right. right? The interpretation the interpretation I had. So in the Ghost in the Shell anime, the actual villain is somebody called the Puppet Master. That throughout the movie, you think you're catching the Puppet Master, but oh. it just turns out to be somebody digitally hacked into their cyborg like cybernetics right and just um puppeted basically yeah and one by one they keep nabbing people and realizing that they don't have the right. puppet master just another so, puppet. so i'm thinking of that as going through oh, the seven auras quotes. until they finally get to the real puppet i like master. that too yeah. yeah 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 so wait so that was from a snippet of the sumerian Mm -hmm. But in the Akkadian version, they just try to attack him before he can get the, the auras up? Is, is exactly. That right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's fair. I love that it it's like, this I, This seems so D&D &D to me. It's like, okay, <laughs> we need to get a surprise round because yeah. once he gets an action, he's going to use at least one aura. Yeah. And every aura he fires up, you know, it's like, you got to get him fast. Yeah, I love exactly. It. Yeah. yeah. So both in the Sumerian story and in Ghost in the Shell, by our various interpretations here, the seven auras or terrors or, you know, what, however you want to see them, are basically symbolically like facing your fears because 
as Major Kusanagi confronts all these puppets who believe they know who they are and that they're acting of their own free will uh -huh. and then learn that they're not, it kind of implies a question to her that she is forced to contemplate in a very Japanese, unstated, indirect kind of way. She doesn't yeah. have any dialogue regarding it, but you can tell like there's this questioning and, and, and searching going on inside her. Yeah, it's like a long so, series of just her wandering around in the rain with music in the background. Yeah, it's like, who am I really if yeah. I could be hacked by anyone at any time and made to do you know, something of not of my own volition. Right. Um, and then they have a great, they, then they do have a good exchange. Uh, there's a scene on a boat where the two cyborgs are talking and, and she is, she actually does say like, so what does it really, I don't know if she says these exact words, but she actually brings up the fact that like, what does it really mean? Like, you know, how much of my humanity do I have, et cetera, et cetera. And the other cyborg just does not take this that seriously. He's like, listen, you've got human cells. You're treated like any other human. Don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. And she's like, well, just because I'm treated that way, is that all it means to be human? And and they have this really cool, like, yeah, very Japanese, like, philosoph philosophic dialogue. Yeah. 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 So this going through these seven auras or terrors is basically like facing your fears. Right. Right. So including your fear of death. And um, we're as we're going to see, some co grim consequences await following upon this battle within the Gilgamesh epic. Gilgamesh is never going to be quite the same after this battle. He's mm. going to be kind of like a soldier returning from war having seen too much. Right. Yeah. But in the version that makes it into the final redaction of the epic, yeah, there's no penetrating through these auras, but basically they just wade in with their weapons and go head to head with the creature. Which does seem like every D&D group possible. <laughs> So it is a massive boss fight, the kind of fight that shakes the earth. At the heels of their feet, the earth burst asunder. They shattered as they whirled Mounts Syrian and Lebanon. Black became the clouds of white, raining down on them like a mist. Gilgamesh then calls upon the power of Shamash, the sun god, and blasts his opponent with hurricane force winds. Wait, Gilgamesh can summon god powers? Yep. Well, he's too thirst divine, why not? Yep. Oh my god, this is so yep. cool. There rose thirteen winds in the face of Humbaba darkened. He could not charge forwards, he could not kick backwards. The weapons of Gilgamesh then reached Humbaba. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Gilgamesh, it's finally his turn in initiative. <laughs> yes. Everything is going crazy. He's like, I'm going to use a god power from the god of the sun! Well, <laughs> and he uses wind wall? Well, he, well, he keeps like the guy stationary so he can get up to him and like get his dagger to his throat. Wind wall, right? Brandon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, work with me. <laughs> There's not even any archers on the scene. Oh, good lord. Who's playing this guy? Look, I'm just reading what I wrote. <laughs> this is just, just adventure log. I didn't write this yet. <laughs> I wonder if Enkidu is just rolling his eyes. Take it up with the Mesopotamian scribes. Of course, of course. Okay. So anyway, Gilgamesh gets his dagger against Humbaba's throat. But Humbaba says, wait, and he begs for his life. And Gilgamesh hesitates. And Enkidu is like, no, kill it, and urges Gilgamesh to do so before Enlil the foremost hears what we do. And this is interesting, because Enlil is the wind god hmm. and kind of the head of the pantheon. So kind of like Zeus for the Greeks or Odin hmm. for the Norse. Right. Now why so why why now why would Enlil care about what they're doing here? Hmm. And and then Enkidu goes on, the great gods will take against us in anger, Enlil in Nippur, Shamash in Larsa. And 
Gilgamesh just called on Shamash <laughs> to do this wind spell, <laughs> wait, right? Wait, wait, but... no, but pause, because I, I love that, like, like six days ago, this guy was eating grass with some gazelles, and now he's got a degree in theology. He's like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, whoa, wait. I took a level in cleric as my first civilized level. And Gilgamesh is like, wait, you didn't take barbarian? And he's like, oh, no, I took cleric. I was brought here by a goddess. And he's like, you're literally a barbarian. <laughs> Why aren't you in a rage right now? Why are we talking? And he's like, no, no, no. Let me tell you about what the gods are going to do. <laughs> but I do, Does he I do, have like a pamphlet he hands Gilgamesh? Like, I, have you heard the word of Shamash? No, no. Gilgamesh is like, I just summoned Shamash. I this is the best buddy cop movie ever. <laughs> <laughs> I love this movie. I don't know. But but I do find this interesting because up until now, it's basically just been Duke's a hazard. Let's go kick some ass, right? right this right. could be awesome. But now all of a sudden, it's like they're doing something illicit. Oh, it okay. goes from like a heroic adventure to like um, a hit. Okay. A murder, you know? Right. So, does it, so does it, this is the implication is like Pumbaba was put there by the gods to guard the forest? Maybe. Okay. I don't know. Hmm. It's you have to read. You have to interpret. And he's a monster, right? So he might be from an earlier time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it it gives this sense that the gods are. I don't know. Apparently, they're going rogue, maybe, mm-hmm. and slaying what they shouldn't be slaying. Hmm. And demigod or not, they're just getting a little too big for their britches, maybe. And I have to wonder again. It's all unstated. Again, very Japanese in this way. Mm, true, yeah. Um, but much like Major Kusanagi, who's always chafing at authority and constantly being chastised for being late or acting without orders or that kind of thing, they're mm. basically showing themselves to be hard to control. And yeah. there's a growing sense that they might be becoming a liability. Pretty soon, they might start challenging the gods themselves, mm. which is what happens in the next template. Right. <laughs> yeah. But wait, yeah. what was um what was Enkidu suggesting? Because I mean, they they have obviously both agreed we're going to go fight Humbaba. Yeah. And now Gilgamesh is prevailing and has his, his knife or whatever pressed to the throat of Humbaba, mm-hmm. uh, about to kill him or it. And then Enkidu is is he proposing like, oh no, we just beat him, we should just let him go, like we just came here to just no, show Enkidu some might. Like, kill him. Oh, Enkidu's the one who says kill him. Yeah. Oh, I thought Nikita was saying, don't kill him because it'll, it'll anger the gods. He says, hurry up before the gods see. <laughs> that seems so much better. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, yeah, I, I, definitely, I yeah. definitely second your turn. They've gone rogue. Yeah. This is good. This is good. Okay. Hurry up okay. before the gods see. That never yeah. leads to any problems. <laughs> yeah. So, finally, just be- before Gilgamesh can follow through, right? Humbaba spits out a curse with its dying breath. And he says... May the pair of them not grow old. Besides Gilgamesh, his friend, none shall bury Enkidu. And then Gilgamesh pulls his dagger across Humbaba's throat, and it is no more. Wow. So Humbaba lies dead, but it's too late, because it got its curse out. Lucky break for Gilgamesh's sister, though. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> wedding's off. <laughs> yeah, wedding's off. <laughs> Interestingly, it doesn't you curse... Do you still a gift? If that... No. I, I don't... I guess... Flowers, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe a fruit basket. <laughs> Interestingly, it, it does. Humbaba doesn't curse them both to never see old age, but rather that they should not do so together. Right. He breaks up their BFFness. Yeah. And one of them shall die, and Kidu. And more than that, no one's going to bury him. No family members, no mourners, no one, save for his lone friend, Gilgamesh. The most beautiful part of that is that the implication is that. Humbaba considers it even more painful to grow old without your friend. 
Mm-hmm. Like that that's a worse fate. Like, you know, because he presumably hates Gilgamesh more because it's the one actually killing him. So he's like, no, you get the bad end of the bargain, which is burying your friend. Something like that. Yeah. So anyway, that curse is going to come back to haunt them later. But for now, they shrug it off like pop some beers. Uh, yeah. Was, was a monster no, right? <laughs> what do they care what, what this Humbaba says, right? They killed Humbaba. The Humbaba. Like, they're on top of the world, right? And yeah. they're just like, yeah! And now they have a one-hour discussion around the gaming table about, like, okay, so can we eat it? Can we make steaks out of it? No, okay, is his hide valuable? Does he have any loot? No, he's a monster. He doesn't have any equipment. Well, right, but, like, like a magical gem in his forehead. I'm sure, he, I'm sure he has a treasure yeah. class, if you look it up in the Dungeon Master's Manual. They're, like, searching the his lair. Manual. Yeah. Yeah, right. But, so it, it seems to me, like, this curse, though, it, it nags at Gilgamesh. And he doesn't show it outwardly. But there might be a hint of it in what happens next in Tablet 6. So Tablet 6. In this tablet, Gilgamesh and Enkidu return to Uruk, and their glory is great. So great that they're greeted by a visitor descending from above. Hmm. From on high, from the heavens beyond the atmosphere. A woman comes down, her skin soft, her hair radiant, her lips full, her thighs aglow with tattoos like transistors. It is none other than the city's patron goddess, Ishtar. And she says that she is pleased with Gilgamesh. Hmm. And she has a reward for him. Gilgamesh is like nudging and can be like, told ya! (laughs) For his mighty deed, she invites him to come into her. She offers to share her bed with him. Wow. Yeah. Now, this is likely a reference to the Eros Gamos ritual Hmm. in Uruk that they would have every year as part of the New Year Festival of Akitu, uh, where we talked about that a little bit in a previous episode. Basically, the king symbolically marries the goddess in order to kind of like reaffirm their relationship and and right. to re-fertilize the land for the year, yep. that, basically. So in in actual Sumerian society, this kind of booty call would be happening every year. Right. But here in the story, it's made part of the action and a consequence of him doing this amazing deed nice. by killing Humbaba. That's really cool. Yeah. So Gilgamesh, instead of accepting this sacred honor, though, rejects her. He's like, (laughs) he says, no. He says, forget it. I'm not doing it. And the question of why is a little bit of of an interesting bit to speculate on. It could be that Gilgamesh is feeling just so high and mighty at this point that even a goddess is like, no, you're not good enough for me. (laughs) Wait, okay, so am I making, I I thought that, Maybe it's from a different version, or maybe it was interpretation. I don't know. But that doesn't he tell her essentially, like, but look at what's happened to all of the other mortal yes. lovers you've taken. Yes. Um, so that's the other interpretation. Uh, and that fits with our theme of this growing existential angst. So wait, is that interpretation, or does it say that in some version? Like, he tells her that. He does He does say that. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, he does say that. And I'm just about to read what he actually says. But basically, I mean, is he telling her off? Or is he giving a rationale, you know? Right, okay. okay. So, um, basically, Gilgamesh maybe might be beginning to realize that even if he accepts her bed, it's not going to be cookies and cream forever, mm. kind of an idea. He's still one day going to die, even if he has the, the boon of the goddess herself. And here's what he says to her. He says, 
Who is there who would take you in marriage? You, a frost that congeals no ice, a louvre door that stays not breeze nor draught, a palace that massacres warriors, an elephant which its hoods, bitumen that stains the hands of its bearer, a water skin that cuts the hands of its bearer, limestone that weakens a wall of ashlar, a battering ram that destroys the walls of the enemy, a shoe that bites the foot of its owner. Oh! What bridegroom of yours did endure forever? What brave warrior of yours went up to the heavens? Well, he could have just said, let's just be friends. I know. Wow. He could have said, I'm flattered, but... Right. Yeah, but no. He's like, look, everybody, every king before me has always married you, has always gone to your bed. They all died. None of them lived forever. You know? <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. And he even yeah. gets it. He he then kind of takes it off into the weeds and is like, and it sucks to be animals because they have to be, you know, like lions. <laughs> he's got a whole cosmology. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So basically he's, he's almost, it's almost kind of like that point in the Buddha's story where he realizes that old age sickness and death are a thing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and he's offended flash. by the fact. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's kind of where he is in his journey. Yep. <laughs> that's where i'm at in my journey too i'm like why am i getting old what <laughs> i know Thir- i'm 38 like 38 come on just this morning i went to the eye doctor and had to confess that i'm starting to have difficulty focusing on, on books like, right. as i read up close i'm like oh i don't want to say it anyway yeah um well ishtar is so incensed at being refused she's like you don't say no to me right <laughs> um she flies into a rage and she she goes and she gets the bowl of heaven, a beast that dries up the land and lowers the water levels in the rivers and opens pits that swallow men whole. Ooh. And this basically snaps Gilgamesh out of whatever funk he may or may not have been in at this point. And for a moment, it's just like he's back on his Humbaba adventure. And he goes into action hero mode again. And for one last great battle, he and Enkidu slay the bowl of heaven. Oh, wow. And then they're on top of the world again. And he says to the serving girls of his palace, he says, who is the finest among men? Who's the most glorious of fellows? And they reply. And <laughs> he's standing behind him kind of pointing at himself. Like, <laughs> wink, wink. And, the, and the, the ladies of the palace all reply, Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh. <laughs> Nobody goes for Akedu? Come on. I guess, I guess they are Gilgamesh's posse. Yeah. 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 There's some gazelle trumpeting. Yeah. Uh, I mean. The front man in the band always gets all the attention, even True, if the drummer yeah. is a really good drummer. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I feel, like, I feel like Enkidu's kind of like a bass player kind of guy. Yeah, bass player. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but here's the thing. I imagine Gilgamesh just kind of like basking in these honors and everybody just like singing his glories, but not quite being able to enjoy it because there's this voice that he can't mm. quite silence that says to a him that... A whisper in his ghost. A whisper in his ghost that says this is not going to last. In Tablet 7, it isn't just Gilgamesh that begins to be troubled. Enkidu starts to have dreams of the gods decreeing his doom, and it stresses him out to the point that he begins to question himself. And this is the kind of moment in our movie where we see Enkidu, like once the wild man, you know, and now he's in the power suit with the Bluetooth and the eye implants. <laughs> right. And he like catches a glance of himself in the mirror and is like, 
Oh, what have I become? He's and, having really like intense cravings for like cattail roots or grass stalks or something. <laughs> yes. It's like, yeah, can't get yeah. anywhere here. <laughs> but see, Enkidu is just not really the philosopher type of character in this story. He's the brute, really. Mm. And so instead of dealing with his anxiety or questioning himself, he basically projects it outward and starts to lash out at all the people around oh, wow. him. Okay. And he blames everyone but himself, basically, for what's happened to him. And first he curses the trapper who found him in the wild. Yep. And then he curses Shamat for introducing him to the civilized high-tech life. And now this is, this is kind of interesting as a cultural He's angle. deleting naked selfies of Shamat on his phone. <laughs> He's like, nope, nope, well, I'll keep that one. No, 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 okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then a moment later, undelete, undelete. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he has many layers of regret yeah. here. Um, but this is an interesting cultural angle because it kind of maybe possibly could have served as a just-so story for the life of a prostitute in ancient Sumeria and mm. how it became tough um, because he curses her with all these things that fit what a prostitute's life probably was. He says, mm. a household to delight in you shall not acquire, Ooh. never to reside in the midst of a family. Later on, he says, your finest garment the ground shall defile, your festive gown the drunkard shall stain in the dirt. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's hard. But at the harshness of Enkido's words, even the sun god Shamash is like, whoa, 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 buddy. And he actually intervenes, and, and then Enkido is like, oh, oh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah, so any, any relents. Oh, so he sets him straight. He sets him straight. But unfortunately, it seems that Enkidu, once spoken, he can't take back his curse. So right. as to make up for it, he also blesses her. Oh, what's the and this blessing? Also, this also might be part of like the just so part of it, because you know there's some rewards to being a prostitute in an ancient world society, or medieval even, mm. or most other societies other than our own, or maybe in some ways in our own. You, you give up basically being a respectable woman in society, but you gain a lot of self-independence, mm, a lot of okay. self-determination, and right. and the ability to have you know economic you know independence. Wow, wow. So, so it's sort of like you, you're you're giving up having a family and all this stuff, but you gain this very special. Yeah, role and you can ranks. rise through the ranks of of status and become like a high class courtesan, hmm. which is basically what she is. Right. Yeah. Right? So he says to her, "Governors shall love you, and noblemen too." At one league off, men shall slap their thighs. At two leagues off, they shall shake out their hair. No soldier shall be slow to drop his belt for you. Obsidian <laughs> he shall give you, lapis lazuli, and gold. Hmm. So, in other words, yeah, it's going to be tough, but you're going to clean up. Hmm. Yeah. 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 That's. I mean, that's, that's an avenue that wasn't available in, in every ancient culture for... Hmm? women so yeah there was some you know some some chance to gain wealth and power exactly i guess that's i don't know from a modern perspective that's kind of like like still it's a consolation prize it feels like to us yeah and it probably was felt like that to them too i would guess Uh, i could see that yeah Yeah, right well not long after this curse and blessing enkidu actually falls ill with some kind of disease and he's bedridden day after day for 12 days and at this Enkidu realizes that he's actually on death's door at this point. And he laments to Gilgamesh. He says, My friend, one who falls in combat makes his name, but I, I do not fall in combat and Hmm. shall not make my name. And then he breathes his last and he dies. 
So he actually has like one slight moment of kind of like an insightful kind of line that he's given. <laughs> right. I mean, the actor portraying him must have really begged the director just to, <laughs> for something, right? Yeah, like, the actor put that line in and the director was like, all right, fine, fine. Yeah, he ad-libbed. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the line was flat. <laughs> so I, I like where this is going, though, too, because I, I was remembering this scene incorrectly. I, I thought he got wounded by the bull of heaven. And later died of the wound. But that's not true. He just got sick after got not getting sick. hurt at all. Yeah. And that's got to really eat away at Gilgamesh because they they were so worried, so anxious about fighting Humbaba, right? Mm-hmm. And they did all this preparation everything, and that went fine. Mm-hmm. But then just out of nowhere, for, for no reason, a healthy young friend just, just passes away, yeah. which is hard to deal with. I, yeah, I mean it's it's the it's the harshest form of reality, you know. And again, old age, sickness, and death, just like the Buddha. So like old age, mm-hmm. Gilgamesh is going to grow old, and Kidu's not. Right. Sickness, and Kidu dies of sickness, and of course, death. death. Yeah. So, at this, Gilgamesh tears out clumps of his hair, and he rips off his fine royal clothes, and he cries out in mourning for his lost friend. And this experience basically just breaks Gilgamesh. He simply cannot go on as the man that he once was. He, he's not—he's no longer the guy going out for prima nocti booty calls. You know, he's—he just—he can't do that anymore. Like he's seen too much. If it was a modern film, he would try to, but would be unable to perform. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Let's insert that in here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. So the tyrant king, who at one time took no shit from nobody, who said, "Hey, you're not doing anything this weekend. Want to go slay a monster?" That kind of guy, right? who gets booty calls from a goddess declines and calls. declines it <laughs> and says, no, he just can't be that guy anymore. Wow. He can't do it. And the life just drains out of him. Doesn't he like hang out with the corpse for a really long time too? Um, I seem to remember him being there until worms came out of the eyes or something. I have to go back and look at it, actually. I don't specifically recall that, but there was a lot about the funeral preparations okay. and things. Yeah. But it, it is as if his time has already come. He's basically like a walking corpse right. at this point. So in Tablet 8... Gilgamesh gives his friend a lavish funeral with expensive grave goods, a fancy banquet, and a statue in his honor even. Hmm. And he orders everyone in Uruk to mourn him. But <laughs> coerced mourning. Coerced mourning. But he still doesn't feel like it's enough. He just he can't shake off what's happened. It's it's just like dirty inside him somehow. It's funny how state sponsored grief does not really just, make you feel any better. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> um it's just Death is now staring him in the face, and he can't ignore it anymore. Mm. There's no more silencing that nagging voice inside him, no more drowning it out amidst the glories of the citizens and all the women just, like, you know, hanging on. His best friend is dead, and one day his time, too, shall come. And he says, I shall die, and shall I not then be as Enkidu? Mm. Sorrow has entered my heart. So Gilgamesh spirals into basically a full-blown existential crisis yeah. at this point. And he's going to die. He knows it. But being a man of action, he, he just can't sit around and write, like, goth poetry or something. <laughs> he's <laughs> right. got to do something about it, even if it's absurd. Even if it's absurd, and even if the act itself will be the death of him, he has to act. He just can't 
do any other way. And in Tablet 9, he goes wandering in search of a certain legendary man called Uta Napishti. Ooh. The legendary man who survived the flood, the great deluge. Yes. At the beginning long before, because this story long predates the Noah version of the flood that's in the Old Testament. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. I mean, yeah. I think any unbiased academic appraisal of the situation would say that, yes. Right. So. so can I do a little side sure. thing on, on yeah. Udnapi's team? Okay. So now, again, I'm not a scholar of, of ancient Middle Eastern literature. Mm-hmm. I'm recalling this from having read the story like some time ago. But as I recall, there's some really interesting differences in the Utnapishtim flood story versus the biblical version, right? And oh, I'm sure there's plenty. One yeah. of them is that, of course, because it was a polytheistic religion, it was not one god who got angry at humanity and, and did something. There were many gods who had to mm-hmm. consult on what to do as humanity got more and more out of control. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the interpretation of the version that I read, which mm-hmm. may not represent all versions, and I may not be recalling perfectly, uh-huh. went something like this. And I love it, right? Okay. That uh, all the gods, they, they have a council to discuss what to do with these humans. Mm-hmm. And the proposal is put out there, like, we should just wipe them out with a flood. Mm-hmm. And they basically, they almost like take a vote on it. Mm-hmm. And one of the gods, do you remember who was the one who was like the champion of mankind in that? Was it Ea? Enlil? I don't know. I, I'll, I, I, go on. We'll call him friendly God, right? Okay. So like one of the gods, the friendly God, uh-huh. was like, no, no, like we, we got to give these guys a chance. Like they are creations, et cetera, et cetera. But he was kind of outvoted. And so first of all, it's kind of cool that he goes along with what the, the you know, majority of the gods chose. He's, mm-hmm. he's outvoted and he doesn't try to stop them from wiping out humanity. Mm-hmm. And because they know he's really friendly, he's kind of like a Prometheus kind of character with, with the humans, they force him to take a vow that he will not go and warn the humans, that he won't go and tell the humans about this, mm-hmm. right? Because it has to come without warning, so they're not prepared and wipe them all out. Mm-hmm. Um, he takes the vow, and he does not break his vow, but he does uh, make sure that one of his most loyal followers, a, uh-huh. a wise and dutiful and all the other good, you know, virtuous things, man named Utnapishtim, uh, is summoned to his temple. And Utnapish team shows up, and there's no one there, and he's mm-hmm. like, what the heck was I summoned here? And there's like kind of like a screen, like a divider screen off to one side of the temple area. Maybe it hides a, a sacred back room or something, I don't know. Um, but this god, this friendly god, starts talking with one of, like, I don't know, one of his daughters or sons or something, some other div- div- divinity or somebody uh-huh. behind the screen, not, pointedly not addressing the follower and not telling him, but just having a conversation behind a screen where the follower can very clearly overhear the whole thing. And he just kind of goes through the plan like, isn't it a tragedy that the gods voted to wipe out all of mankind with a flood? Isn't it a tragedy that it'll happen this many days from now? And the other one's like, yeah, it's it's really bad. How could they ever survive? Well, I suppose they could survive if they built an ark, an ark to these dimensions. And, you know, if they built it big (laughs) enough, I suppose if they made the dimensions big enough, they could save, you know, one pair of every crucial animal and and they'd have enough that once the waters went down, they'd be able to reestablish themselves. And just all of this just gets overheard by Utnapishtim, which is like the blood drains out of his face. And he so, just, yeah. I remember the name of that god. Oh, yeah, go for it. Edward Snowden. <laughs> <laughs> He's this, the this god is, of leaks. This is WikiLeaks. This is, <laughs> this is Danny Leaks. <laughs> In which case, like, some of the dimensions might be, like, completely wrong, right? Like, yeah. But he goes home, he's like, tells his wife, like, we're going to build this boat, and you got to trust me on this. And they build it, and they get the animals on, and sure enough, they survive the flood. Yeah. And the other god like dude come on he's like hey i didn't tell anybody i don't know how he found out 
<laughs> so I love that version of it, right? It's yeah. just so much fun. Yeah. That is very interesting. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Wow. <laughs> so that's the backstory. Once again, that's what we need to understand why Gilgamesh is going to this guy, right? Because he was the guy from ages and ages and ages ago who survived the flood. And part of that story, the conclusion of that story, that myth was for whatever reason, he was granted immortality. Yeah. He would be undying. Yeah. And he's the only one that Gilgamesh knows of who might be able to yeah. tell him how. Born mortal, but was able to live forever as exactly. a special boon. Exactly. And I think the implication was he was such a loyal and faithful follower. That's why he was saved in the first place, and also why he was granted immortality. It's kind of the way I read it, but I don't think that's stated. I, I, that seems to make sense to me. Right. Yeah. So anyway, he has no idea um, where this mythic figure may be found, whether he might be found, whether he even exists or is just a legend. But again, he has to act so he goes wandering in search of him. So he abandons the city, and he abandons the comforts of civilization, and he goes wandering in the wilderness. That's where this has led him. He knows now that all his civilization and all his technology can't save him. And there's something inescapably mortal about even him. Like Major Kusanagi, who is almost entirely cybernetic, there remains something inescapably human inside his ghost, as it were, that he just can't escape. I mean, it's 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 a part of his essence. And he, he, he wanders, and not really sure if he might be spelling his own doom in the process, but it's just something he has to do. So he abandons mm. civilization, he goes out into the uncivilized and uncontrolled wilderness to face his mortality head on. <laughs> love about this is uh -huh. that he is I mean really this is sounds like a hopeless quest right you're gonna go look for a legendary character yeah you don't know where that person is or how to find them if they exist yeah and if you find them what you're hoping to accomplish is to become immortal which you don't even know if that's possible right and it's this like idea of like you're going on a quest that is basically an impossible quest mm -hmm. right but you feel the need to go on it anyway that is yeah. what I love about this story and I feel like it sets like the mold for journey stories that come for many eons after am i hearing echoes of walk like a god <laughs> the book <laughs> the book that you yourself wrote <laughs> the book which is no longer in print uh, oh it's yeah. no longer for sale no no oh, long gone. yeah well you can still follow rogue priest articles <laughs> from before right True, yeah. rogue priest.net yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. anyway yeah so in the wilderness gilgamesh Remember, he tore off his clothes, right? So I don't know if he's just in his undies or if he's just totally full-on, like, going wild man, like Enkidu was, mm. you know, just with his junk hanging out for everybody to see. I don't know. Yeah, I like so he comes upon a lion, and he hunts the lion, and it dons the lion's skin. So now he's really the beast man, you know? Mm. It's almost as though he's attempting to trade places with his lost friend, nice. right? But unlike him, he is determined not to die, and he yearns for the secret of immortality. So he searches. And like Major Kusanagi on the trail of the puppet master, who at this point has been through so many of those deceptions that she doesn't know who or what she's really looking for, Gilgamesh goes on this trail, like you said, of Uta Napishti, who may or may not exist, and you just it's just like an, almost an absurd quest, but you just have to. Right, yeah. You know? He wanders all the way to the edge of the world, to the mountains where the sun sets and rises. And he climbs to the top of a great wintry peak. 
where lives a cave entrance, with snows strangely melted by the heat of a great ancient reactor. Humming with dark radiation. <laughs> Wait, by the way, I let the same mountains are where the sun both rises and sets. I know. That doesn't make sense to me either. Maybe it just rises a little and then it kind of creeps over to the other side of the world and goes through the cycle or something. I don't, I I don't, don't know. know. Yeah. I don't know. That's, that's how it was put. It's like in a track. That I read. Yeah. 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 Okay. So guarding the entrance to the reactor are what appear to be two giant scorpions. Hmm. But upon closer inspection, they turn out to be reticulated mechanical constructs, golems from a bygone era. Hmm. Upon his approach, they ratchet into action and block his passage. But recognizing his cyborg construction, the scorpions relent. He who has come to us, flesh of the gods is his body, says one. Hmm. Two-thirds of him is god, and one-third human, says the other. Then... After questioning him of his purpose and warning him of the dangers, they allow him to pass. So he passed the DNA check. <laughs> it was like retina scanning or yes, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. 66.67% is enough for us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just sneaked by. A straight 66 wouldn't cut it. <laughs> right. So next he passes through a long, dark tunnel, the very tunnel into which the sun passes when it sets at night and from which it rises. So, and that's something that I think I've heard before, like, at least in Egyptian mythology, like the sun is thought to go into this under-earth kind of place and come out the, on the other side. Hmm. I still don't understand how it can come out from the same mountain. Right. And I don't know if there's been too much interpretation of what's in this. Yeah. It's not very explicit in the actual cuneiform. It, it could even be interpreted as, like, if the entire earth is ringed by mountains, it's the same mountain range. You're just either on the east end or the west end where, you know, the sun could rises. Be. That's right. I'm making that up. Yeah, but, maybe. Yeah, yeah. So as he passes through, the blazing heat of the sun, the reactor inside the mountain, begins to flare into the tunnel. And he must race through to emerge before it can engulf him. The tongues of flame nip at his heels, but he makes it out just in time. No, wait, in the non-cyberpunk version, was this him being chased by the sun? Maybe? Like, Again. Was there, like, fire in this situation? Or? Kind of. Okay. I mean, it's so... There's, there's, it's broken in right. the text, and it's so schematic that it's hard to tell exactly what's going on. But some of the commentary by the translators and stuff make hmm. it sound like that's the case. I so like that idea. I went and ran with it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I love the idea that you're sneaking through a tunnel that the sun's going to pass through. Yeah. And that apparently the tunnel is so long that it'll take you an entire day to get through it. So you got to hustle because the sun's coming up behind you. Yeah. And he emerges into what appears to him to be a garden made of jewels. Hmm. A carnelian tree was in fruit. A lapis lazuli tree bore foliage. Instead of thorns and briars, there grew stone vials. He touched a carob. It was a bashru stone, agate and hematite. Hmm. I guess a bashru, they didn't know the translation of, so just put it in that way. It. Sounds like an Akkadian word. Hmm. Tablet 10. Hmm. We're getting close to the end. Tablet 11 concludes the story. Tablet 12 is just a little tiny bit. Okay. So, Tablet 10. In the stone garden, he encounters an old tavern keeper. <laughs> 
<laughs> you just like barely managed to pull off the right exit on the Sun Superhighway, and of course, there's like a there's a tavern. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You just you exit out of that level, and then there's the screen says loading, and then you wait. You find yourself in a tavern. <laughs> there's like Irish music in the back. <laughs> no, but here's what is interesting in this, and we heard this in a previous episode in this series. Tavern keepers in ancient Mesopotamian culture that was a woman's role. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that was one of the ways that you could be something other than just a dutiful wife. Oh, nice. Okay. Mm-hmm. Be a tavern keeper. He encounters an old tavern keeper, this old lady, who mistakes him for a dangerous hunter and at first bars the tavern against him. She's got like all these patrons that come and go. She's got hunters showing up. She's got like a hunter that she's 86 and she's got his picture up <laughs> and tells the staff, like, don't let this guy in. Like that. How much traffic does this place get? You're in the reactor tunnel. Uh, <laughs> it's just outside of it. Just, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, just just, just, just on the, the other reactor. side of it. I don't know. Wow. I don't know. But at length, she speaks with him, and she ends up warning him of the futility of his quest. But then she sort of relents and tells him where to find the fairy man who can take him across the waters of death to Uta Nepishti's home. Oh, fairy man like a boat. Yes. Not like a, like a leprechaun yeah. with wings. A ferryman. Yes. <laughs> ferryman. Yes. By the way, now that they're basically in the underworld, I just I feel in true cyberpunk fashion... Uh-huh. This, this would be the moment when he stumbles upon, like, a processing facility where he sees uh, Enkidu's body on a conveyor belt going <laughs> going to be disassembled or whatever. You know, like, yeah. that's where the true, like, there is nothing after death, like, just pours home to him. Oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Kind of like a little, like, Soylent Green kind of scene with the conveyor belt or something. Oh, yeah. yeah that's, that's very grim and, and yeah, fitting. Definitely. Yeah. So he comes upon the ferryman who is surrounded by monsters of stone. And then something kind of odd happens in the story. He just rushes in and attacks the, the stone <laughs> monsters. And maybe he thought they were attacking the ferryman, oh, okay. and his only chance is to defend them, but he just rushes in and attacks them and destroys them. Hmm. But alas, the ferryman then tells him that the stone ones were the rowers for his raft, and Gilgamesh has now hindered his own progress in his haste. Right. So... The story is told oddly, but I like it because it seems like, oh, that's that bit of insight. That's like, this is where I am on my journey. You know, I'm the one who's like in my own way. You know, I like that. As, oh, interesting. As interpreting okay. in terms of like a psychological symbolic. journey or something. Right. Yeah. yeah. I just see that as a storyteller me, it's just crying out, like almost to just make up a reason why he had to attack them, you know? <laughs> well, some insult or yeah, something. That's why I said yeah. like, maybe, oh right. no, they're attacking the ferryman. Right. Which yeah. way well, yeah, I could see that. You're like, yeah. I need this ferryman. I got to save him. Yeah. Yeah. So, much like Major Kusanagi, who, closing in on the Puppet Master, attacks the tank that we Mm. mentioned before, and attempts to rip open its hatch with her bare hands, only to tear her cybernetic arms clean off in the effort, it is ultimately a futile attempt, and Gilgamesh, when he is so close to his goal, only makes it harder for himself. Hmm. Now, he must be the rower for the ferry across the waters of death. So the ferryman has Gilgamesh fell 300 pine trees and stripped them for use as punting poles. Okay. So why does he need 300 poles? <laughs> He's just going across one river, right? right? How long does one pole last? Yeah. Well, he soon finds out. He it's soon... like it's like a crappy inventory system. Like every time you use the item marked pole, it's deleted from your... Like they're, they're expendable. It's like, bloop, you move one square. <laughs> I use a pole. Bloop, you move one square. Right. <laughs> 
Yes, and you suddenly regret having passed up that crappy looking pole three levels back. <laughs> right. Because you thought that it was just like, I taking up space. I don't use my whole here. backpack for pole. Yeah. <laughs> and the best part is like, it's like a poorly designed game. So you get halfway across the river, run out of poles, and you can't go back to the pole seller because you don't have any poles to get back with. Yeah, then you, yeah. Have, to, you have to quit and load again. To, yeah, yeah, like, oh. Load a save. Like way back to before the reactor of the scorpions. Like, God, <laughs> you're going to do the morning scene again? Yeah. 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 So anyway, he soon finds out what the deal is. So... They set off on the raft, and he pushes it along with the poles, only to find out that they get used up somehow. What? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and it is not stated how. So it very well could be, like you said. Oh, I have to yeah. imagine that the waters of death somehow wither the poles. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. Yeah, because like, because poles made of wood, that's a uh-huh. living substance. It's an organic so it substance. kind of gets aged and warped until it crumbles to mulch. Whereas the stone creatures would have, they're not made of anything living, they would have just passed through. Yes. So one by one, they begin to fade, and he goes through the whole great store of poles until he has just, until the last one withers away before they've made it across. And then Gilgamesh has to actually use his clothes as a sail. So there's a wind? Apparently. Why Why is that surprising? <laughs> well, I just picture us being... I mean, I guess it never like, stated... still? Well, yeah. It never stated okay, that yeah. you're in the underworld, uh-huh. but I picture it that way. So I just figured you're in kind of like a dark, cavey kind of area. But uh, it's never yeah. stated. So... Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's a, that's a good point. You came yeah. through a tunnel. You're it could be still cavernous, a river in the cavern, I right. suppose. I don't know. I suppose there could... I mean, sometimes there's a breeze in caverns if there's pressure differential, exactly. pressure differential with the surface, but... In any case... He has to use his clothes. And I think, it, I think if I understand the text, he actually uses the ferryman's clothes instead of his own. So he's yeah, like, here, give do. me your clothes. Oh, not both of them. He's just like, here, I don't know. I'm up. not quite sure. Oh, wow. But it's kind of funny. <laughs> Finally, they touch shore and Gilgamesh steps off the raft. There on the shore, walking toward him, is a man. His hair is silvery and aged, yet his skin youthful and taut. His gait is light, yet his eyes heavy. Weary as one who has gazed on ages upon ages. Wow. At last, no more games, no more tests. Much like Major Kusanagi finally coming upon the puppet master in the end, piercing through the last deceptions to finally discover the truth, Gilgamesh stands face to face with the one that he has sought for so long, the one who survived the flood, the one who knows the secret of everlasting life, Uta Napishti. He's like, you didn't go to that bar over there. You didn't throw me out of that place. (laughs) Oh, there's a way better place. You should have just gone a little bit further down the shore. Yeah. Yeah. And he says to Gilgamesh, Why are your cheeks so hollow, your face so sunken, your mood so wretched, your visage so wasted? Gilgamesh replies, Why should he not appear so? And explains about the death of his friend and his search for immortality. 
And then the man says to him, Why, Gilgamesh, do you ever taste sorrow? You, who are built from the gods, flesh and human, whom the gods did fashion like your father and mother, did you ever, Gilgamesh, compare your lot with the fool? They placed a throne in the assembly and told you, Sit, the fool gets leftover yeast instead of fresh ghee, bran and grist instead of best flour. In Kidu, indeed, they took to his doom. But you, you toiled away, and what did you achieve? You exhaust yourself with ceaseless toil. You fill your sinews with sorrow, bringing forward the end of your days. Man is snapped off like a reed in a cane break. The comely young man, the pretty young woman, all too soon in their time, death abducts them. Wow. Ever the river has risen and brought us the flood, the mayfly floating on the water. On the face of the sun, its countenance gazes, then all of a sudden, nothing is there. What? <laughs> that's that's quite a lament, isn't it? <laughs> that is great. And that's exactly what I would expect from a guy who literally saw everyone he loved die in a flood. Yeah. And this guy's like, well, my friend died. <laughs> like, shut up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You don't know the half of it. Yeah. But, okay, in the metaphor he uses here, he says... Um, like how the river rises and the flood, blah, blah, blah. In that case, he's referring not to the Great Deluge, but to the annual cycle of the rivers flooding and making the land arable and then going away again, right? It's kind of like he's saying, like, there's a cycle. Things get good and then they get bad. Yeah, maybe. Is that, that's what it seemed like that to right? me. Yeah. So maybe there's a certain amount of wisdom being conveyed. What was the know? mayfly part? The mayfly. Well, you know, a mayfly only lives one day, right? Beautiful. Okay. So. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It, it, what was the line? It... On the face of the sun, its countenance gazes. Then, all of a sudden, nothing is there. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so that's what man is like. I want that. In, I want that carved on my grave. <laughs> that's your epitaph. Yeah. And so, just just for the record, if the gods have decreed that we shall not grow old together, <laughs> and that you are to bury me, like I would love that quote to go on. There. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> deal. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I get to be Gilgamesh in this deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you are going to carry sorrow all of your days, so uh, be careful. Yeah, yeah. Careful what you wish for. Or something that I just get a plague, I guess, and die? So, yeah, something yeah. like that. Tablet 11. The final main tablet of the story. Hmm. At Uta Napishti's mockery, Gilgamesh flusses with anger, but then he holds back. He gazes upon the form of the man before him. Great beads like drops of mercury encircle his neck, hmm. implanted into his skin. Hmm. No, protruding through his skin, emerging from below and betraying a cyborg construction to his body. Said Gilgamesh to him, to Utanapishti the distant, I look at you, Utanapishti. Your form is no different. You are just like me. You are not any different. You are just like me. I was fully intent on making you fight, but now in your presence my hand is stayed. How was it you stood with the gods in assembly? How did you find the life eternal? And then Utanapishti's eyes narrow, as if evaluating Gilgamesh. Then, at length, his lips part, and he says, Let me disclose, O Gilgamesh, a matter most secret. To you I will tell a mystery of the gods. Hmm. Then he pulls wires from the back of his neck hmm. and connects them to cybernetic ports on the back of Gilgamesh's neck. But it's like an old, because it's before the flood technology, so there's like data reels going on. And like... <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, maybe they were more advanced. Oh, that's true. I guess they were the yeah, the Atlantis kind of situation. Yeah. Yeah. Are we we in an optimistic sci-fi movie or a pessimistic Mm, one? Generally pessimistic. So you're right. Yeah. Yeah. The good old days were. Yeah. Yeah. Then he touches one of the mercury beads encircling his neck, and they begin to glow. Hmm. And then Gilgamesh's field of vision is then hijacked by a staticky display. So he's seeing what's being projected into him through these wires, right? His eyes no longer show him the world around, but instead a video playback, a digital vision as seen from the eyes of Utanapishti so long ago. He sees how Utanapishti was warned by a strange being with glowing tattoos like transistors Ooh. of impending disaster. And now thanks to you, we know a little bit more about that yeah. actual scene, <laughs> right. the curtain and everything. <laughs> he was instructed to build a boat and load it with the creatures of the earth, along with his wife and himself. And then Gilgamesh beheld, through the eyes of Utanapishti, how something struck the sky and burned it, and it began to rain. How the oceans rose and the cities flooded. How the wails of humans were drowned out by the roar of the deluge. Then the video jump cuts to an argument. Suddenly, he and his wife are in some kind of space station Hmm. in the heavens beyond the atmosphere. There are many of the beings there. The gods are like, airlock these guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that might be what some of them are advocating. There are many of the beings there, all with the same glowing transistor tattoos, and they appear to be arguing furiously with each other in some ancient language. At last, they appear to come to a consensus, and they turn to the viewer, that is, to Utanapishti and his wife. One of them holds up fingers glowing with an unnatural radiance, touches them to his forehead, and there is a blinding flash of light, and then darkness. The video cuts out. Gilgamesh's own vision returns. Hmm. Uta Napishtu unhooks the wires from his neck and says, that is how they gave him immortality. But you now, who will convene for you the gods' assembly, so you can find the life you search for. So basically, he's like, well, it was a special situation. Right. And that's not to be repeated. Yeah. So <laughs> then, as if to drive home the point of the futility of Gilgamesh's quest, he challenges him to stay awake for six days and seven nights. But of course, he cannot. Sleep comes upon him like a fog. And when Gilgamesh awakes, Utanapishti says he has been asleep for seven days. Mm. And each day his wife baked a loaf for him and laid it by his bedside. Gilgamesh then looks at the line of loaves lined up next to him, each of them older and more decomposed than the last, Mm. a record of time and decay. At last, Gilgamesh finally seems to get it. And almost like a Zen monk presented with a koan, the illumination seems to just kind of strike through him. And he turns then to his host with a look no longer full of protest and angst, but of solemn understanding, and he says, O Utanapishti, what should I do and where should I go? A thief has taken hold of my flesh. Hmm. For there in my bedchamber death does abide, and wherever I turn, there too will be death. And Utanapishti nods. After that, Gilgamesh gets up, quietly leaves the room, he casts off his lion's pelt, washes his matted hair, dresses in civilized garments, and makes to go home. Wow. His time of mourning is over, and his journey is at an end. At the shore, Utanapishti dresses down the ferryman for allowing Gilgamesh to cross over. It's like, what were you doing? (laughs) Who told you to let this guy in? 
And he tells him his services are no longer needed. He fires the ferryman? He does. What? <laughs> yes, he fires Why was there even a ferry if no one's supposed to come across? <laughs> I don't know. What did the guy bring him? Well, maybe, maybe he brought up like flour for his wife's bread. So maybe you're not supposed to let anybody into the club without a hot girl? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's that fair. <laughs> so taking Gilgamesh back will be his last ferry trip. But he's still got to do the return trip. He's still got to do the return trip. Oh, I wouldn't trust him on this trip. Wow. <laughs> but just as they're about to cast off on the ferry, Utanapishti gives Gilgamesh one last parting gift. He tells him a secret. There is a plant like a box thorn. It has prickles like a dog rose and will prick the one who plucks it. But if you can possess the plant, you'll be again as you were in your youth. Hmm. And with that, Utanapishti touches another of the mercury orbs encircling his neck, and a great whirlpool opens up amidst the waters of death, its churning funnel leading down to the bottom of the river. Then Gilgamesh plunges down to the river floor and spies what Utanapishti described. He took the plant and pulled it up and lifted it. The heavy stones he cut loose from his feet, so he must have like had weights pulling him down, I guess, and the sea cast him up on its shore. So this plant grows on the bottom of the river of death, exactly. which we've established seems to wither or destroy things, That's potentially. What... And so it's only accessible because Utnapishti made this whirlpool to help you get basically in and out fast enough. Yes, okay. or something, yeah. something like, like that. that. Yeah. yeah. Gilgamesh and the ferryman board the ferry, and they bid farewell to Utnapishti and plant in hand. <laughs> well, the ferryman just flips off Utnapishti. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Before he leaves, he makes sure that his photocopier is broken. <laughs> right, right. He's just shoving office supplies in his bag. <laughs> and your wife's bread sucks. <laughs> your bread is moldy. So anyway, um, Gilgamesh thanks Utanapishti and plant in hand, they depart. Hmm. On the other side of the waters of death, they look for a place to cleanse themselves after so unnerving an experience. How did they get back? They're out of poles. I don't know. Oh, wait, they had the clothing sale. They're naked with it. Well, one of them is naked with the sale. <laughs> Maybe that's why he was actually fired, was for being out of uniform. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Right, right. Anyway, on the other side, they look for a place to clean up, basically. Because, you know, you know how you come home from just like a, a really hard night of drinking. And you're just like, oh, I just feel so dirty on the inside. I just need to take a shower, right? I stink like decaying bread. And, <laughs> yeah. 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 So it says, Gilgamesh found a pool whose water was cool. Down he went into it to bathe in the water. Of the plant's fragrance, a snake caught scent, came up in silence, and bore the plant off. So out of his pouch or something, this serpent just kind of like sneaks in and is like yoink and just kind of like off into the brush always the serpents in these stories well is that why there's a serpent in the other story we're more familiar with maybe Maybe. i don't know know. so and so this is how gilgamesh loses the secret of eternal youth and how the serpent gained the power to renew itself by By shedding shedding its skin skin. yeah i love i love those little like easter eggs in in ancient tales Yeah. yeah You're like, see, now this makes sense. And you're like, yep. yeah, it does. And you think about it too hard, and you're like, it still doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, right. But it feels like it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. It's good enough for a story. Yeah, right. So seeing the snake slither away with the plant, 
and knowing he'll never be able to find the correct spot beneath the waters again. Gilgamesh handles this... He just with... beats the crap out of the ferryman. <laughs> 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 this guy gets the worst. <laughs> he just thrashes him. <laughs> no, it's a bit of interpretation how he handles it, but I think of it as Gilgamesh handling it this with kind of a shrug and a bemused smile after mm. all that. He turns to the ferryman and he says, For whom Urshanabi... That's the ferryman's name. Mm. For whom Urshanabi toiled my arms so hard... For whom ran dry the blood of my heart? Not for myself did I find a bounty. For the lion of the earth I have done a favor. the serpent the lion of the earth yeah so i love it so if you just like stare at what happened and the snake getting away yeah and there's got to be this like wave of just like this heavy weight of like oh my god yeah and then it just it's one of those moments where it's it's gotten so bad you just kind of laugh yeah you're just just like like, oh my god yeah yeah and so ends his great quest so ends the tale of the warrior who conquered all but could not conquer death wow now the end of the story comes after this rather abruptly and without any of the satisfying denouement that we have come to expect from a a proper Hollywood movie or anything. Is this like Tableau 12 now? Not quite. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Not quite. This is the very end of Tableau 11, but it's like, it's like they're running out of room on the tablet or something. (laughs) They didn't have any clay left. They they have to order something and it come for a month or something. Yeah. Um, So we don't get that, that kind of satisfying wrap up that we want. But the Mesopotamians apparently either had a different idea of narrative structure, or they already knew the story they didn't need to be told, or, you know, like you were saying before, like there could be all this kind of like whole different aspect of how it is experienced mm, right. in ancient Mesopotamia that we just can't account for. Um, so it's, it's super abrupt and interpretive as far as what it even really means. But basically, here's how it ends. So... The ferryman, having been fired from being a ferryman, is just like, well, I guess I'll go with you now. And he follows Gilgamesh back to Uruk, right? Hmm. So they journey back to Uruk, and it says, At twenty leagues they broke bread, at thirty leagues they stopped for the night. When they arrived in Uruk the sheepfold, said Gilgamesh to him, to Urshanabi, the boatman, O Urshanabi, climb Uruk's wall and walk back and forth. Survey its foundations, examine the brickwork, were its bricks not fired in an oven. Did the seven sages not lay its foundations? Mm. A square mile is city, a square mile date grove, a square mile is clay pit, half a square mile is the temple of Ishtar. Three square miles and a half is Uruk's expanse. Wow. Which doesn't sound very big to me. It's big when you're building it out of bricks. <laughs> I suppose. It's <laughs> a lot of bricks. Yeah. No, no. I don't know. I'm sure it would have been gigantic at that time. But it just, it kind of feels like almost like a footnote. Like, the scribes at the end were like, oh, yeah, we should preserve how big the city was. Right, yeah. Yeah, so let's throw it in at the end. Although, I, I will say, it's um, it's oddly symmetrical with Ghost in the Shell. And I know we've made an agreement we're not going to reveal the ending, as in what, yeah. what the big mystery reveal is. I won't. Mm-hmm. But I will say that the, the final just visual scene, um, after all of that, mm-hmm. is of the main character um, 
looking out over this gigantic kind of Neo-Tokyo city and just kind of the oh, sense of the vastness of her just surveying it and all the possibilities. Uh-huh. And I kind of like that the first thing Disney gets home is just goes up on the rampart and like, let's just look at the city. Like, this is how big it is. Yeah, good point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It is kind of interesting. <laughs> right. So anyway, there ends the story. So some storytellers like to try to spin this ending as like Gilgamesh learned some great lesson and then like turned good and was a good ruler after that, not right. a tyrant anymore. And I think he learned a lesson about mortality. Right. But I don't see any evidence here that he changed to be a moral person. Mm. He, he just... He moral learned... by high standards. Right. Yeah. But he, he learned something about what it means to be a mortal being. Right. Yeah. He learned something about himself. I think... I, I've also always gotten the impression that he improved as a ruler. It does not say that here. But I think one of the reasons I got that impression is because... Although it's not necessarily stated... I take my takeaway is that from the time that Enkidu wrestled him onward, mm-hmm. the right of first night was canceled. Like he no longer does that. And so almost through Enkidu's intervention and all of this, he's become like what you consider a proper ruler rather than a tyrant. Mm-hmm. And also like the the idea that the the goddess Ishtar, you know, because you would have to marry the goddess Ishtar or mm-hmm. your equivalent local goddess as a condition of kingship in, mm-hmm. in the reality of, of this ancient part of the world. Mm-hmm. But in the story, she comes and offers him that at a certain point when he's accomplished it. He's left the city, stopped terrorizing people. Doesn't say, it doesn't say because he became good, but he went and did something champion-like and kingly and fought this beast and all that. So that is, to me, it's sort of like he's proven himself to be, have become what a king is supposed to be, noble, noble-hearted, oh, okay. rather than just like, I'm going to live like a, a frat boy with a lot of money. Okay, well, that's very interesting. And that is... If we use the word virtuous, that would make sense in right. terms of the ethics of an ancient Of an culture. ancient world, yeah. yeah. And he could, I mean, I'm assuming he still has slaves. I'm assuming he still executes people. Like, I, there's a long list of things I would not consider moral <laughs> that I'm sure he's still doing. Yeah. But I, I get the impression there was some kind of, like, maturation of him as a ruler. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. But that is interpretation. That's not in there. I can see it, though. Yeah. I can see it. Right. So... Tablet 12. Do you want to find out what happens in Weirdo Tablet 12? I, I do. Like, is this like the, the Fanon tablet? Like it's kind of... This is like the, the outtakes if you get the DVD. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the director's cut or something or like the, the cut scenes. Yeah. So Tablet 12 doesn't actually really belong to the epic itself at all. Even hmm. though it's tacked on to it, it's just, it's clearly not meant to be part of the same story. It has a totally different tone and it seems to be a preservation of one of those Sumerian stories. And it's the one that I mentioned where he is playing with his mallet and ball, drops it into the netherworld, <laughs> cries about it, and has to go get it. And it's, and it's like Gilgamesh in the netherworld. It's like, well, what the hell? Right. And it's, as if, it's as if you were watching this amazing anime like Ghost in the Shell, you know, and you just like, you're, it ends and you just have this haunted feeling inside you. And then it just cuts to an ad for the, you know, like, like Sailor Moon or something. You're just like, oh. <laughs> but, you know what I like about that, though, is that, yeah. yeah. Why do you think they did it? I Honestly, I think it's just archival practices. Hmm. I think it's probably like, well, where are we going to put this? That's what I thought. It obviously should go with the Gilgamesh stories. Yeah. Like, it has to be in there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. But there was no place for it anywhere else in the, you know. And whoever was composing it and infusing it with all this um, kind of angst, because none of that was in the Sumerian stories, who knows how much of that mood it accumulated along the way. 
But at some point, it's threaded together in a fairly coherent narrative with yes. a fairly consistent mood until we hit Tablet 12. Right. So it seems like the guy was just like, I'm done at the end of Tablet 11. And then somebody else was like, but what do we do with this story? You know? Right. And he's just like, <laughs> or maybe it's maybe it's the fan version, you know? That yeah. is written in. It's the slash fiction of Gilgamesh and Enkidu. Wait, let me ask you a question though. So the idea is he's he's playing hockey or something like it. Something Some, like a field hockey kind of a game something. that has a, a, a ball and a melon. Right, and he loses the melon. It falls into the netherworld. So what happens? Does he does he go in and is there an adventure when he goes to get it or what? You know, it was really hard to follow. Hmm. So honestly, I just kind of skipped past that's, it because I had a lot more yeah. important things I had to research for this. But <laughs> I, I mean, I want to go back and actually find out what happened, though. Because the reason I wonder is, I, I almost wonder if that story, because it involves him going to the to the netherworld, uh-huh. if it is some other earlier version of the entire story of Gilgamesh. Like, here's a different reason why he went to the underworld and what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like a broken, much less interesting version. They're like, well, we'll stick it on as an alternate or something in an ending, but... Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's also, I mean, because, like, why would the same character go to the netherworld twice? Right. Like, it's not an interesting yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's like, it's like, why are there multiple creation stories in the Old Testament? You know, in the mm. Bible, why are there multiple yeah. floods? You know, yeah. it's, they were preserving different varieties, exactly. variations of the story. Yeah, you know? I think including it was definitely for that reason, like mm. the archival yeah. thing. But I just wonder what it originally was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well... What did you think, listeners? I mean, did you like this? Did we deliver on our promise to make a finale that was truly epic? And did we make this series truly epic? I mean, we've covered a lot of ground in this series. And to me, the Sumerians now feel kind of like my neighbors that have invited me over for dinner. (laughs) I I have clearly read their mail (laughs) because we read their letters. So I think I might have committed a postal crime. Right. But, (laughs) But... but you didn't build any gods you can't pay for, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, that's a much bigger problem. Well, I have a decent salary now. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I can it, afford a lot of gods. I won't tell Rachel <laughs> that you're putting most of your salary into building gods. <laughs> <laughs> most of it goes into the podcasting dungeon. Right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, if you would like to help us keep delivering epic content like this, why not support the show? Contributions get you a portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will do you up as a beady-eyed Enkidu <laughs> or, or a stone man who's <laughs> just about to get crushed. Or a really sad ferryman. <laughs> a really sad ferryman flipping off the viewer. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'll make you look awesome. So just support the show at www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod and you'll get your portrait drawn. Thank you, Andre, for being on the show. Absolutely. Thanks again. for having any, me. Any parting thoughts? Um... No, I think I think we covered really well here. Yeah. Anything you want to plug? Anything you want to plug? Um, <laughs> yeah. So nothing for myself, uh, but I will mention that my girlfriend uh, just uh, recently had her first book published. Uh, and if any of you listening consider yourselves to be an introvert, uh, the book is called "The Secret Lives of Introverts." Uh, Jen Graneman is the author, and she runs the world's largest uh, community for introverts as well. Um, so she knows what she's talking about. Interviewed hundreds of people for the book, and. Um, it's all about uh, how both introverts and the people who love them can learn to accept themselves. 
we have no introverted listeners. So. <laughs> You've got two introverted hosts here, but yeah. I'm sure I'm sure everybody else listening is. Everybody listening just puts it on at a party and is like, woo! <laughs> <laughs> I, I, apparently I do that enough where people don't believe me I'm an introvert when they meet me at a party, and then uh-huh. I just go home and talk to no one for five days, and I'm like, oh yeah, introvert. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, thank you, Andre, and, and yeah, definitely check out Jen Graneman's book, The Secret Lives of Introverts. Yes. And remember also that this week is your last chance to enter the Who Should Play Tito in a Hollywood movie contest, our black humor contest. Details of the contest are at www.deadideas.net. Get your vote in and your name will be entered in a random drawing to win a portrait of you drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. All right, everybody, thanks for listening. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. So after we were done recording, I went back and reread this Bilgamesh in the Netherworld, and oh my god, it was even more silly than I remembered. <laughs> so I, I just, I have to tack it on. This is cherry. This is good. Okay, so here's what happens. So there's this fabulous tree called the Halupu tree, from which Bilgamesh fashions a wedding bed for Inanna, who is uh, the Sumerian precursor of Ishtar. And then he fashions for himself a ball and a mallet from the wood left over, and he strikes out in search of a pickup game, basically. And it says, playing with the ball, he took it out in the city square, playing with the, and there's a break in the text, he took it out in the city square. The young men of the city began playing with the ball, with him mounted piggyback on a band of widow's sons. Oh my neck, oh my hips, they groaned. The son who had a mother, she brought him bread. The brother who had a sister, she poured him water. When evening was approaching, he drew a mark where his ball had been placed. He lifted it up before him and carried it off to his house. At dawn, where he had made the mark, he mounted piggyback. But at the complaint of the widows and the outcry of the young girls, his ball and his mallet both fell down to the bottom of the netherworld. With, and there's another break in the text, he could not reach it. He used his hand, but he could not reach it. He used his foot, but he could not reach it. At the gate of Ganzir, the entrance to the netherworld, he took a seat. 
Racked with sobs, Bilgamesh began to weep. O oh, my ball, O oh, my mallet, O oh, my ball, which I have not enjoyed to the full, O oh, my, and another break in the text, with which I have not had my fill of play. <laughs> so, so he has this sport where he has people of the city just, he's riding around on piggyback like he's playing polo or something. And, but, but they resent it. And at the cry of these people, somehow that causes his ball and his mallet to fall down to the neither world. But it's not that far because he's, he can almost reach it with his hand or with his foot. But alas, he can't get it. So he starts to cry and he cries about it. And then he cries out, who will bring it up for me? And Enkido, who it says he's his companion, but mainly it seems to be in this tale that he's his favorite servant. Enkido says he'll do it. So Bilgamesh gives him these very strict instructions about how to dress and exactly what to do so that the neither world denizens do not think him a stranger and seize him. But Enkido completely ignores all of it. <laughs> and he does not return for the neither world. Then Bilgamesh complains to the god Enki, who asks the sun god Utu, hey, can you fetch that Enkidu when, he, when you make your nightly rounds under the earth, you know? And, and, and he does. <laughs> and that's it. So Enkidu is returned to Bilgamesh. And then Bilgamesh asks what he saw in the neither world. And the rest of the poem is basically like Dante's Inferno with Enkidu relating the fates of all those that he saw below. <laughs> so that's a very different tone. A very different tone than what you've seen in the rest of the epic. You can see why no scholars seriously think that it's part of the main epic. You know, this is the campy Adam West version <laughs> of Gilgamesh. <laughs>